0: I'm probably not going to find an opportunity to talk about this in the show, but there is a scene at, at right at the beginning of season three where um, Hannibal has, like, clocked another serial killer and they're doing that thing where they're just sort of, like, basically flirting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, nice. and there's, like, throughout the Hannibal series, there are loads and loads of kind of intertextual references where they'll just, like, kind of, they'll quote things uh, very conspicuously or they'll make kind of visual cues, like the whole clockwork orange thing. Um, But for some reason, him and like Hannibal and this medieval historian um, reenact the conversation between Donald Sutherland and um, what is it? uh, Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum from um, from Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1978, where they're talking about um, the Leonard Nimoy character, Dr. Kibler's book. It's like, Dr. Kim's book is garbage. You know, it takes me... uh, He pumps one of these out every six months. It sometimes takes me that long to write a single sentence. Um, (laughs) And it's like, what purpose did that serve other than to make people go, oh, it's that bit from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I never clocked that before.
1: (laughs) That's like one of my favourite films too. It's a, it's a, it's a scene that haunts though. It's like every time we go to some sort of book launch, it's like I, I reenact it in my head all the time. I'm like, How the fuck did you do this? How did you finish a book? <laughs> oh, who is it
2: who has ever said that? So sort whenever one of when, when my friends succeeds, I die a little inside. Mm. I de- I I'm an incredibly resentful person. <laughs> <laughs> and every success, every everything that my friends do, which is better than what I do, just, I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> So it was with some trepidation that I accompanied him to the Baltimore State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, and there, maddeningly, before we could get down to business, we encountered the kind of fool you know from conducting your own daily business, Dr. Frederick Chilton, who delayed us for two or three interminable days. Finished with the tedious Chilton at last, Graham and I went on to the Violent Ward, and the steel door slammed shut behind us with a terrific noise. Will Graham and I approaching Dr. Lecter's cell. Graham was tense and I could smell fear on him. I thought Dr. Lecter was asleep and I jumped when he recognised Will Graham by scent without opening his eyes. I was enjoying my usual immunity while working, my invisibility to Chilton and Graham and the staff, but I was not comfortable in the presence of Dr. Lecter, not sure at all that the doctor could not see me. Like Graham, I found and find the scrutiny of Dr Lecter uncomfortable, intrusive, like the humming in your thoughts when they x-ray your head. Graham's interview with Dr Lecter went quickly, in real time at the speed of swordplay, me following it, my frantic notes spilling into the margin and over whatever surface was uppermost on my table. I was worn out when it was over. The incidental clashes and howls of an asylum rang on in my head. And on the front porch of my cabin in Rich, thirteen dogs were singing, seated with the eyes closed, faces upturned to the full moon. Thomas Harris, 1981.
0: At the signal, time will be out of joint.
2: Hello and welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast dedicated to all things eerie, weird and hauntological. Last time we tried to start a season of episodes focused on queerness, in which we talked about the sexuality of fascism for hours and then didn't record another episode for two months. We hereby announce our triumphant return and, as we did last time, we're focusing on a mythos, a lore, rather than a single text. The savage mythos of the serial killer. But without further ado, it is t- it is time to introduce our latest guest. Matt, say hello to
1: the lovely people <laughs> at home. Hello. Uh, yeah, introduction then. I guess my, my name is Matt, Matt Cahoon. Uh, I am 27 or 28, I can't remember which. And uh, I'm a Capricorn and I blog under the name Xenogothic. Yeah, I am very happy to join you both here today. I would have said a
2: Scorpio. Scorpio, okay. Why, actually? For no reason at all. There's a 1 in 12 chance of getting it right. (laughs) That's true. Uh, Matt, you blog and tweet under the name uh, Xenogothic. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it is you are focused on in your
1: writing, and about the book that you have coming up? Yes, Uh, so in, well, there's no official date yet. Uh, But first quarter of 2020, I am publishing my first book called Egress. Uh, Full title, Egress on Morning Melancholy, and the Fisher Function. Uh, It's coming out on zero books. Not zero books. Fuck. Uh, What? uh, (laughs) 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 We would have asked you to
0: leave. (laughs) This episode's over. Turn off the mic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Coming out on repeater books. There we go. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, it's a lovely summer read about um, death and friendship and politics and philosophy and all sorts. And yeah, uh, on the blog, I have been running that for about two years now, two years in October. Um, Started as just an excuse to keep writing after I finished my master's degree. Um, and was born out of a frustration at not being a very good goth um, and not liking a lot of goth culture and trying to pick up a lot of the uh, aesthetics that um, that culture is kind of known for and has maybe become too attached to in a conservative sense and looking at contemporary philosophy and politics and culture to try and push it out of its comfort zone.
2: I'm speaking as someone who is at the very least adjacent to goth, my Paisley shirt
0: notwithstanding. Paisley I'm, is hella goth. It is hella. It's goth. OG goth. It's, it's like it's th- that dressing as a cowboy or dressing as one of the remains. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I am
2: curious. What um what um elements of uh, goth culture do you identify as being uh, conservative or uh,
1: unhelpful? Um, I guess this is is probably mostly a northern thing of. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Oh, I'm good for now. Thank you, Um, I'm offering blueberries around this. this (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm from Hull originally, and never felt like I quite fit in there with the general culture of a lot of indie bands. For me, what was important about coming from there was it was the birthplace of Industrial Music and throbbing Gristle, and that was like the biggest thing for me as a teenager, just to kind of uh, affirm the fact that this kind of dead end town that was like right on the coast of the northeast coast and not really going anywhere, quite infamously the crappiest town in the UK for the early 2000s officially, um, according to some book. Uh, But there was this amazing cultural thing that came out of there that um, I loved but wasn't represented still. And if you wanted to get close to that sort of culture, the nearest place you could go was Whitby. And there you'd have the gothic festival every year that was was really steampunk. Mm was very entrenched in the mythology of Bram Stoker's Dracula and whatever else Um, as much as I loved all of that sort of culture I just was totally turned off by the way that it was being represented and was like where is that um, where is that now in that, where is that uh, avant-garde sensibility in Yorkshire where is um, a sense of gothic Whitby that's not stuck in um, you know, some book from, the, from 100 years ago that's now become like a major tourist attraction. It's like that, that sort of um, reputation <laughs> to get stereotypically leftist has just been subsumed by capital. And it's like, how does, you know, where's the outside in that? Um, and growing up I never saw that, ever. So it was sort of, um, living in London now, that's quite a, quite a different thing to talk about in that sense. But for me that's where it came from. Yet yeah, rejection of that conservatism, anyway.
2: Awesome. awesome. Uh, I got Audacity running as a backup. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so, thank you. Well, thank you for telling us a little bit about yourself, and we're going to uh, plunge on the head without further ado. Lucy, yeah. with whom we haven't done introductions actually. <laughs> no. Have we? Hello, I'm Sean. I'm Lucy. Uh, we've been your hosts for like a year and
0: a the half last now. Hopefully, 22 should... episodes, although some of those were interviews. Yeah. You know who we are. You know who we are now. I think it's like at this point, um, just in terms of like introductions uh, and their place in the wider, with expanded weird signal mythos, Um I think it's fairly appropriate to mention the fact that Matt and I first met properly um, at the was it um, at the Mark Fisher Memorial Lecture earlier this year, um, and yeah, so we've been hanging out ever since. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, so basically serial killing, and well, I think also queer season because that's what we're doing this as part of. Um, and I think kind of like the first, well, the most, the kind of key thing uh, that we're gonna be focusing on in this episode is. Um, more or less a continuation of what we were doing in the Lovecraft episode. Um, in, the, in that episode, we were talking about um, about weird fiction and the idea of cosmic horror or cosmic pessimism and the, uh, the nature of the, the kind of numinal realms of that and the kind of just, yeah, the, the Lovecraftian milieu. And we were talking, we were focusing on like the idea of queering that in some capacity, but our exploration focused mainly on the idea that even though um, queerness and um, and Lovecraftian horror don't the the kind of like the, the direct connections between them are kind of you know uh, um, to some extent a matter of conjecture. However, what we found uh, in that is the sense that um, they occupy a similar critical domain. So whenever you kind of take either concept to a further like level of um, of analysis, then it'll become you know there'll be crossover things that make them comparable, and it's possible to talk about them in the same terms. And um, yeah, so basically, we thought we'd do that with serial killing now. <laughs> and so yeah, and also I think also just just um, commenting on the trajectory queer seasons taken so far, um, I think it's also apt to point out that our experience of doing queer season for the one episode that we've done it so far this being up to is that our experience of it more or less parallels um, the relationship of popular conceptions of queerness with actual queer history and theory in that we started out, like, going into Lovecraft very much with an attitude of, like, like, corp pride of like, yeah, let's get gay up in here. <laughs> and then proceeded to just talk about eroto-fascism for two hours. Yeah. And then I mean, it's I like, mean, oh, actually, it's difficult and painful.
2: I remember getting to the end of that and just deciding, you know what, I don't think I do fucking like Lovecraft anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, um, so, kind of, what we're going to be going into is the, the wider dimension of serial killing and queerness. Um, so starting off, like, what is our conception of the serial killer? And, um, just there's i don't know, there are multiple levels that this operates on and it's worth just kind of proceeding through them um starting with the literal def or, you know, the, the definition of a serial killer if anyone's been watching mind Hunter recently you'll have been seeing very much the formation of these terms and that taxonomy of serial killing uh that is people who um kill an, a certain number of people usually like at least two i think i can't remember if there's a statistical minimum body count but um what happens is um it's it's a well a serial serial killing killing in a sequence so often over a period of time usually with a view to disguising the crimes usually with a view to like once a single crime has been committed there will be an expectation that more will be done following a similar or developing modus operandi and um Crucially, these are killings that are born of a certain type of compulsion um, which can come from a very a, a great sort of number of directions and I think one of the things we were talking about actually before um, before we met up today uh, was the idea that it's possible whether or not it's possible to be statistically a serial killer without actually being categorically a serial killer and I was struck by a quote from Eileen Warner uh, that she gave in one of her Uh, recordings of one of her interviews after she'd been uh, imprisoned. Um, I think she was on death row at the time. And um, she basically says she was admitting to having done all the killings, but she says, I think the exact quote was something along the lines of um, I never got into that thrill kill business. Um, I, um, you know, um, but I've got the numbers so that makes me a serial killer. (laughs) Um, But that's kind of interesting because it's like, in the case of Eileen Warnos, this is by her account, you know, whether, whether or not, there was a thrill element to to what she did is you know we're just going on her word but um generally she saw her crimes as being ones born of a rage or opportunism very much very often she was robbing the people that she was killing and so it was it was like a career for her and so we could really so it becomes difficult to apply the mantle of serial killer to uh, someone like a, a serial assassin. Um, I'm trying to remember the, who's the Polish guy who they did a special on on last podcast.
2: Um, the, didn't they call him? it was his nickname? maybe Iceman or the something? Iceman. Um, <laughs> I forget. I won't look it oh, up. Yeah. But yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that. Um, so that you know, that's someone who is technically a serial killer and had a ki- killer MO, but at the same time he was doing it for money. Um, but so that's you know that's the definition of a serial killer, um, and what but what i was talking about with this idea of the killer the serial killer existing on multiple levels is that that is the that's a that's real life serial killing um which has born a genre of um true crime inspired literature and media um which basically it's sort of the alienness of the pathology of the serial killer net well Invariably creates a kind of mythology around it simply because it's such an alien concept to so many people And so that's where we get um, The popular conception of the serial killer is this strange kind of They'll be, they'll be trying to conv- convert it into a work of art or something Which we're going um, to be exploring in greater detail Or it's feeding into some sort of like altered or skewed worldview um, and it's this kind of, this idea of uh, the mythological division from um, from typical humanity, but again, which, you know, it's sort of has, is worlds away from kind of the actual lived reality of serial killers, but at the same time, um, this takes on another level because the mythology of the serial killer is something uh, that serial killers create for themselves, and it's the world that they internalise, they make the so the world that they see themselves as operating in far more closely resembles a um a narrative of you know the horror theme horror or thriller based serial killers but crucially also they project that um world they try and project that worldview onto their victims but also just onto the media you know onto the world at large they try to make the mythology real in a sense and so it if, if, if ultimately kind of results in a feedback loop. Um, and that's what we're going to be exploring in a lot of detail today when we're going to be talking about the Hannibal series.
2: Lecter. he is uh without doubt probably the most famous fictional murderer at least the most famous I can think of um he has and uh, we're going to explore a little bit the uh, the biography that has been created uh around him and because of the nature of the um Well, the franchise, to be honest, because he is franchised as a character. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Things do obviously get a little bit warped and hazy, but the um, details that we have are something as follows. That he was born in the year 1933 to an aristocratic Lithuanian family. There are conflicting sources about what happened to his family's estate, both uh, during and after World War II, some saying it became converted into an orphanage under Soviet occupation. But uh, Dr. Lecter himself took, well, before he became a doctor, obviously, but he took himself off to the Sorbonne Palace, where he studied medicine, took up a residency at Johns Hopkins U- Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, where he began to focus on psychiatry. Mm-hmm. In 1975 he was identified by Will Graham of the FBI as the serial killer hitherto known as the Chesapeake Ripper and was interned at Baltimore State Hospital for the Criminally Insane where he continued to contribute to psychiatric journals. He also assisted FBI agents Will Graham and later Clarice Starling in the apprehension of murderers Francis Dollarhide and James Gum, before escaping and going into hiding in Europe and later South America. Between 2013 and 2015, all of the events from 1975 onwards happened again. (laughs) (laughs) Lucy, so, Lucy. Hey. So why is this queer?
0: Um, well... There was a point that um, I think kind of possibly the best, the first thing to come into here, which is a point actually you raised when we were having our initial meeting of it in that um, the inherent queerness of serial killing operates on many theoretical levels that we'll be exploring in greater detail, but there's just the very direct presentation of them is something inherently queer. Uh, You mentioned that the the fact that um, they kind of, they recognize each other inherently like they have um there's this kind of sense of clocking where two serial killers walk into a crowded room that each will be instantaneously able to um spot the other one and this goes into a very interesting territory as well because as well as being you know the series very much centers around Hannibal he is the protagonist he is who's the antagonist uh, he, we're talking
2: about the tv series of the Hannibal, tv is.
0: series Hannibal but just yeah, actually, no. I think it's crucial to point that out, um, and that's another thing I want to go to in a moment. But um, but the central drama of the TV series is, in fact, um, it focuses around the idea of Will Graham as uh, as someone who is very connected to serial killing um, because it's his career to track them down, and his career to in his job to use his um, extraordinary powers of empathy to identify serial killers. And the eternal question is whether he himself is one of these serial killers and so the um the direct kind of the the progression of this queering of the serial killer character uh develops into a hypothetical relationship between hannibal and will graham it's also it's interesting as well
2: how um, Hannibal in particular is portrayed in um, I think in really in all of the adaptations, including the um, the Hopkins uh, adaptations. He's he's presented as a man who is extremely refined in his in his tastes. He's a man who knows what perfume a woman is wearing. He can identify it by name, and these are all like obviously these are all stereotypical characteristics of a gay man, um, a man who is um, or queer man, a man who is very up on features like this, who knows the difference between different kinds of wine. There's a certain, it is the, um, the implications of, of, um, the effete presentation there, because there is something, um, yes, it's simply how, uh, our culture deals with this, with the image of the, of the refined man, the man refined in his taste is that is it's, the assumption of effeminacy of some kind with the implication of queerness that, that always involves.
0: Mm-hmm. And, um, the, it's also kind of a crucial point that you raised about um, the fact that our primary frame of reference for this we'll be talking obviously a lot about Silence of the Lambs because it is the great work mm. um, the great singular work and also a fair bit about um um, a little bit about Manhunter maybe because I have a certain fondness for it um I've uh, actually not seen Manhunter oh it's kind of fun it's kind of like it's weird it's sort of it's very 80s it's very very 80s and like the guy uh Michael Mann I think he's just come from making like Miami Vice or something and so it's um it's a, one of the there was a interesting essay actually about it in um Bitch Magazine uh where it was um talking about how it's it seems like a very uncomfortable fit uh, this um this uh sort of weird psychodrama happening in a trad cop thriller thing set, setting which I, I think is kind of kind of works but and also there are other adaptations that less are said about them the better <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry ridley scott <laughs> um but i know one i think that the thing that stands out a lot about the um the 2013 to 2015 series uh hannibal is the fact that... I mean, this is going back to the, the queering of the serial killer. Um, one of the things that I think is quite significant between the two kind of eras of Hannibal is the fact that this most recent one is being produced and directed by a queer individual. Brian Fuller is a gay man. Mm. Um, and that, I think, makes a very crucial connection, which which I think makes... Um, makes something like manhunter in retrospect stand out quite strangely because um there's a kind of analogous relationship of that inherent queerness um in how they treat the serial killers because as we've said you know they're they're these kind of outsider figures they're treated almost like a different species or a different type of human that or you know and as we're going to be going into possibly some sort of like post-human type entity but um but in those, it was very much a case of uh, detectives and people looking in from the outside, uh, which very you know struck uh, a chord with um, queer theory because it's, it very closely resembles um, heterosexual culture looking at queer culture from the outside and making strange leaps of logic or, or, or kind of faltering attempts to analyze it. Um, and then to contrast that with the Hannibal series, um, this is, I mean, that's still happening. But um, whereas I don't think, um, I don't think uh, Thomas Harris was necessarily. T- I think he was conscious of this, but he didn't really follow it. But this is, is it, but Fuller's adaptation is occupying both worlds, and that is, I think, the where a lot of the very very interesting elements of how Hannibal and the other killers is portrayed ar- arise from. Um, And also, you know, bringing back to Mindhunter, as we mentioned earlier, um, it was actually in one of the most recent episodes I saw. Um, I think it's like one of the earlier ones of season two. Uh, They're talking about um, one of the assistants to Dean Corll, who was a serial killer in Texas, I think in the 1960s or 70s. And um, he was, he had a confidant who was originally one of his victims because he was abducting boys and uh, torturing them and then um go, and the, but you know and acquiring more boys and like it was treating it like a kind of sex ring, but then they were just or his his cover story was was that it was a sex ring, which is a it's gotta be bad if that's your cover story. But um <laughs> but when they're talking about um interviewing this um surviving boy who actually teamed up with uh Dean Coral, uh one of the um, the the character who's presented as kind of like The nerdy and I think crucially uh Christian you know they make a big deal of his Christianity and his conservatism he points out it's like oh yeah obviously um he's homosexual as well that's going to be a pathology there and there's a very uncomfortable conversation because the psychiatrist character uh the lady is also gay and she actually flags up in very very strict terms like yeah no it was actually depathologized in the in the manuals of mental health very you know a couple of years ago and you need to catch up
2: yeah (laughs) this is something I I, I can't remember which episode it was but I remember saying before about that um, I remember when I used when I used to follow um, Nick Land's blog uh, back in the bad old days Um, (laughs) he shared some fucking bullshit uh, article for some fucking bullshit libertarian site that was pointed out that loads of um Yeah, um, like, loads of convicted serial killers in the US reported having homosexual encounters and saying, well, when are the gay community going to deal with this issue? That is clearly unique to them directly (laughs) and obviously. And, like... The fucking thing with that. I'm saying fuck a lot. Wow. Um, <laughs> it was that like the art, like the paper they were quoting from, I just like mentioned that. And whilst also stating that, of course, like the actual population of serial killers in the world is so small that you can't really draw any kind of statistically relevant conclusions from it whatsoever. <laughs> so everyone's gay anyway. So like, <laughs>
1: yeah. Nice. But it's interesting. I think that, that this, this fine line that's, oh, it's not so fine, but, um, at least what you're saying in your intro, Lucy, about um, uh, the definition of serial killing being—it's uh, uh, it, it's innately cultural—and I guess that's something that should be emphasised mm-hmm. in a sense that—and that's sort of me wanting to not—it to, sounds generic, but that's sort of not wanting to say pop cultural or necessarily underground. It kind of—it's it, it, cultural in the sense that it crosses those lines. And I was having a, as you do, I was having a conversation at. A, House party last week that was, um, I can't remember how we got onto it, it was a drunk conversation, but talking about whether soldiers are serial okay. killers in okay. the sense that if you you, you have the, you can, you, that, that sort of, the, you have the numbers and that's uh, celebrated. Like I think of a film like American Sniper mm. where the, the whole mythology of that person, or oh, it's not necessarily mythology. Um, Pagiography. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that's uh, that the, the 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 number of kills is, is is presented in a very different way. But for serial killers, it more explicitly is a mythology in the sense that it's it's creating a, a, a cultural moment. And I've been going through a bit of a a phase with um, the band Sunkill Moon recently, and he has this song, um, Richard Ramirez Died Today of Natural Causes, where he talks about um, going to writing letters and visiting Richard Ramirez the serial killer um, but describes this moment where he, he also almost mourned his, mourns his death as a, as a pop cultural figure and how the way that his killings at the time had such a massive impact on a wider community of kids being afraid to go out at night or having curfews or things like that um, but it seems to be that yeah, Nick Lance <laughs> argument that, that conflating those two things is, is very bizarre but at the same time it's like the, the, that's this weird diagonal that's going on between them right of whether this is a, is it a pop cultural thing or is it more in a, and this is something that comes up with the Hannibal TV series especially is it more of an avant-garde experimental thing um, and it's the strange, uh, the way that these figures in their own very specific and violent way kind of uh, trapes that line that's essentially like an, a modernist obsessive line.
2: Because um, Ian Brady, um, more than any others who come to mind actually, Ian Brady was always wanted to present himself as that kind of intellectual serial killer, as someone who uh, was very keen on presenting himself as a well-read cultured individual. And I think it's important to emphasize that he was keen on presenting himself as a well-read cultured individual who, um, he could speak German, he read like Mein Kampf in the original German which doesn't mean fucking anything anyway. <laughs> and uh, so, there yeah, he read reader of Nietzsche and the Marquis de Sade and so on. And he, and he wanted. And it's interesting that this is obviously an act of self mythologization on his part that was aided in the better by publishers like Feral House, who published his mm-hmm. um, book through the Gates of Janus. Um, which uh, he, there is this. Um, it's interesting to wonder where it comes from even because you know, he was because that like, this book like, that he did is that like, the moore's murders in the 60s which is to my mind at least it's before the rise of the figure of the serial killer as the romantic nietzschean figure mm-hmm. and but at the same time you have in his self-understanding of his pathological desires this um th- this need to present it as something that act it's actually clever if you think about it. It was actually clever that I wanted to do these things and that I did these things. And it's actually something that, in maybe, you should celebrate my 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 my, my will and my drive to actually
1: act out my desires. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember reading interviews with him in uh, in prison when I don't know how recent they were, but there was a sense of him framing it in that way. Like I'm thinking of there's two sides of it, I guess. So there's um, there's the sense that how much is 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 recognizing this fact of about Syracuse glorifying their own delusions of grandeur. But at the same time I'm while you're while you're saying that I'm thinking of the Smith song Seven Little Children, uh, with the words of the chorus of Oh Manchester so much fanciful. When the sense that it's not so much the fact that uh yeah. glorifying Ian his own um, self confidence or arrogance, but that necessarily has an effect on the wider culture of an area. Mm-hmm. And question and uh, Paul brings that community more generally into question and forces them to question themselves but then on this, and uh, but but again yeah brady would sort of uh, i remember one interview where he says that um i, I can't remember what triggered this response whether it was him talking about um why the moors or why just do it in the first place but I, there was something where he compared himself to uh, or compared the moors and the romanticism of the moors to wuthering heights and the gothic um the gothic image of that landscape in the mind was something that he wanted to to tap into and perpetuate the the terror of. So, and that's something that I guess still lingers on today, where you have the Moors being wholly associated. Not wholly associated, I guess, that's a stretch, but nevertheless, that's something that still comes to mind.
0: It's like a key term, Moors murder. (laughs) Right, exactly. It's got that kind of branding as well, that alliteration. Yeah. Yeah, actually, one kind of side note I wanted to bring in about Ian Brady is um, the fact that it's interesting to keep in mind a timeline of when a lot of this stuff was happening because, um, well, I think that there was a romanticization of killing, which came from your know, Gothic novels before that, and then had entered into, um, the spheres of European modernism. And we get, it's where you get things like, um, what well, that it's a type of romanticism that I think had an infectious effect on, um, on a number of figures. Cause got, um, I mean, Ian Brady was trying to come from a philosophical dimension and had these literary pretensions about him. But um, two works of literature come to mind. One is um, one is um, Jonathan Fowles' uh, his book *The Collector* was a direct inspiration for um, Leonard Lake and Charles. Well, Leonard Lake uh, c- creating his like horrific dungeon where he would keep what he described as his M ladies. Uh, who he named after the figure Miranda, who in the book uh, The Collector is uh, kept prisoner and kept, like, she is part of, like, this this guy's butterfly collection. And that's sort of... I've, I've not read the book, but I did see a really weirdly good play adaptation of it one time. But, you know, that's... It's something that was there that actually romanticization and single murders predate serial killing. And I think serial killing is when it takes on an even greater meta dimension. And also because that was when there was a taxonomy around killing in general is being developed. So, um, so I guess like serial killing, the invention of the serial killer meant that serial killers were suddenly able to compare notes. I think that's quite a crucial mm. thing. Um, and also like another work of literature, I was going to actually bring in as research for this podcast well for this episode, but I realized would actually be way too much to bring in uh, because it had it hits on so many different things, but I couldn't possibly give it justice is, uh, Herman Hesse's The Steppenwolf, um, which is about a guy called Harry Holler, who's, uh, like, who follows a very, very similar kind of, uh, serial killer dynamic, he's isolated from humanity, he has lots of, like, he, a lot of it is his anxiety around the con- the significance of the, um, of the, the- 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 what he describes as the immortals, so, like, people who are ascended above common humanity, and he talks a lot about, um, Goethe, and uh, specifically Goethe and Mozart as possessing these qualities, but I do actually, there are things that we're going to talk about which I'm going to link back to, like, specifically why Steppenwolf came to mind for me, but just going back to Ian Brady, um, so he was, he in his early days, when he met Myra Hindley um, and they started, you know, doing their stuff, um, I think the Nietzschean element of that was partly, (laughs) yeah, doing doing the horrible murders, um, was when, well he I don't think there was possibly maybe even that much to it so much more than just being an edgy boy uh, Mm. and saying like I've read I read Hitler's book and stuff and um, (laughs) and it was the same time like um, Myra Hindley herself was very focused on self-presentation she would wear what what were considered at the time especially in the location very very um, sort of promiscuous what would be seen as kind of promiscuous or, or Uh, very daring outfit choices and she wore like very short skirts and leather jackets and stuff that was a big part of their kind of history but when crucially you mentioned the feral house book that was um that was like ian brady writing in um in prison and where he kind of explores more the nietzschean dimensions of his killing uh which i actually have a quote from which i could read but i want to make this point first but that was in 2001 and it was only in like a couple of years before that uh that he started doing that and that was him self-fashioning as hannibal because he was trying to do the thing he (laughs) was it's like he was trying to become the consultant serial killer who um who contributes uh to psychiatric journals i think um the way the way hannibal is framed actually in that context is like he writes about everyone's problems but his own which nobody knows because he may or may not have them, with uh, that which we're also going to go on to. But um, I just wanted to flag up the point. But this is, if we strip away the mythology, this is really, really just garden variety sociopath behaviour. Because it's all about control. Because uh, like he, when he was out in the field, he was able to control people by controlling whether or not they lived or died. But once he's in prison, he um, he's trying to continue that control. Like he did lots of things where he would claim to be able to show people where, you know, show grieving parents where the bodies were buried, but not quite say where they were, and turn whenever he got out of prison into, like, as best he could, into a media event. And that's around the time he started writing this book.
2: I think and then, it's... Uh, sorry.
0: And, but but the, the interesting thing about that is it was when he was... All his um, influence kind of um, started ebbing. It was towards the end of his life. Um, and that was when he was um, just talking about going on hunger strike and stuff, because he just... That's the natural course of a sociopath. When they're no longer able to control, they will self-destruct. And that Mm. was what he was doing and that's what he did. Uh, He died in 2017, uh, I believe, no funeral. I guess (laughs) that's
1: the key word, right? Influence is the key word there. And in the sense that ever being cultural, in the sense that he sees himself as a a, a pop cultural figure. And it's almost, yeah, it's it's careerist in a way. It's sociopathically careerist, in the sense that he wants to continue his influence on not just the people that he, his victims and their families, but also a, a, a more, uh, a general social consciousness
2: mm-hmm. is it um I'm thinking of uh, another classic depiction of a serial killer uh, American psycho um one of the things that's most striking about um, that film um is he never does any work like it, when he gets <laughs> yeah. when he gets to the office just puts he just puts on the telly yeah. <laughs> um, and he never and one of the things that I, I I liked about like about the film a lot is the interior voice of um what's his name god what's his name christian bell's character oh bates B- bateman patrick bateman patrick thank you for, for patrick bateman's interior voices it just kind of like whiny like <laughs> uh he's, he's on the verge of tears because they don- might not get a seat at the sushi restaurant and uh, and so on and there, there is something just um deliciously wretched and non-hannibalesque about him in that mm. regard because he is just um Because this is what sociopathy sociopathy actually amounts to, is not intelligence, but pretence of intelligence. And being very skilled at that, being very skilled at cultivating um, an impression of cultivation.
0: Um, but I about mean, without... to see BTK's poetry. Case in
2: point. <laughs> uh, I started. What well, I've not seen. I've only seen the first episode. Ted
0: no, Ted Kaczynski, fucking Son of Sam killer. Uh, Berk- David Berkowitz. David Berkowitz's yeah. uh, <laughs> poetry, poetry. But
2: uh, I've only seen the first episode of the new series of uh, Mind Hunter. But there's a BTK poem, and he misspells the word night <laughs> 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 But um, but no, that's what you do get with uh, what you do get with Bateman with. Um, like the, the wonderful, wonderful sequence where he uh, kills Jared Leto, and he's just talking about fucking a um, uh, hip to be square and how uh, it's a really clever song. Actually, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, because this is something that is really important to emphasise in this discussion about cultural presentations of the serial killer, the actual taxonomy of the serial killer. It does, does not resemble this at all. They are like, like, like you said, Lucy. Like um, Ian Brady doesn't start to invent himself as Hannibal until two thousand one or something. And no, they're the, loser
0: pieces of shit. I think it's worth emphasising. They're yes. pieces of shit. Yeah.
2: They're, they're profoundly dysfunctional people, and like, and the only like mo- motive sympathy they deserve is recognition of the fact. That you know, some, you know, some of them, a lot of them, do are, yeah, are provably from incredibly abusive dysfunctional backgrounds we're all from a profoundly broken society we're all products of the sin in Eden and so on mm. but um, they're the pieces of the shit broken pieces of shit and that's that, mm. which is why the only true crime podcast I listen to is last podcast on the left which once again we are shouting out and no they <laughs> don't pay us for it <laughs> uh, because their, their, their whole mission as they repeat as they've said well, loads of times is that they kind of want to demythologize these
1: people they want <laughs> to present them
2: as what they are as (laughs) just wretched manipulative people who destroy other people's lives
1: (laughs) but that's why I wonder why I wonder if that's the that's what becomes so fascinating about Hannibal Lecter as a character is that um, this is the tension as much as that is a caveat that always must be said nevertheless there's this tension that uh, if these people are it's the psychological tension of Hannibal's character as a psychiatrist and, and sort of as a as a as a as a figurehead for a sort of um, public service or uh, a, 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 someone who is a, a practicing medical, whatever you want to call it. Um, the tension being that anyone could go to see him. That the, the, these people are particularly broken pieces of shit, <laughs> but within a million of other broken pieces of shit and it's like the what what is the i guess the tension is, is if this is how we can we, we we apply the same tools to think about these sorts of people and that's why the distinction has to be made but 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 also at the same time it doesn't remove that tension of the role of psychiatry or the role of understanding ourselves as who we are mm-hmm. um and this sort of natural thing is uh it's uh one of the many books brought here today was the uh, this um edition of the Marquis de Sade's 120 Days of Sodom and I really like it because it has this essay in it by Pierre Koslowski and he talks about nature as a, destruct- as a destructive principle um, and it becomes this that these these figures that are innately mythologized it's almost as if they're mythologised because they represent something within all of us to an extent that uh, an extreme form of something that we nonetheless share, this potential uh, uh, Tendency towards violence or towards hatred of other people, and it becomes a in, in its extremity, it becomes a but debatably, it becomes a way of us to think about our own nature.
2: Mm-hmm. And, um, on a plain level, really, when it comes to I'm thinking specifically of Mods Pikelson's depiction of Hannibal in the series, a lot of what makes that character so attractive and compelling is simply that he's cool,
0: yeah, he
2: is really cool, he's. Very good at what he does. He is always very in control of whatever he's in. And there's also something aspirational about him. Uh, I felt like watching that show, sort of like just constantly wishing. What would not give for that wardrobe? <laughs> and uh, I remember. <laughs> I don't know, re- it takes wa- a bit of a dip
0: in season two. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and just
2: like his fucking house as well, just like, I'm just wondering, sort of like, what do you. I remember just watching it, because i uh, re watching it in preparation for this, and wondering, <laughs> who do I have to kill to have a house like that? Yeah. Like, everything <laughs> is so tasteful. I remember, I remember watching when um, uh, our friend Max introduced me to it, and we, were- hey Max. And uh, hey, when, Max. <laughs> when we- I was watching it with him, just like, every. Single different scene Hannibal's in, he's changed his suit mm-hmm. in a way that's really appropriate for the tone they're going for. He's got it going, he's got it going.
0: Uh, I think the thing that um, I wanted to kind of like bring in is to, just going back to that point like in the introduction, the idea of the self mythology of the serial killer becoming the shared mythology of the serial killer. Uh, what's unique about Hannibal um, is. Is the fact that he's the one serial killer who's not a loser, and yeah. that is that is kind of like he is he is the embodiment of what serial killers actually think they are, and he's the only one that gets it because I mean that's this is one thing actually I wanted to bring up um, that is crucial about the Brian Fuller thing, which is so the drama and a lot of the tension of um, Hannibal kind of arises from the fact that it's Hannibal surrounded by this constellation of not even just lesser serial killers, but lesser sociopaths or lesser psychopaths that everyone's kind of trying to um, trying to be Hannibal. And like there's, it's actually mentioned in the third book, Hannibal, um, where, because uh, Dr. Chilton, even though he's not a serial killer, he's presenting himself, at, he's trying desperately, like because he's, he's such a fragile character he's trying desperately to fashion himself as Hannibal's opposite number on the op- other side of the glass and Hannibal just brushes it off he's just like oh yeah he, he lo- Dr. Shelton does love his petty tortures and stuff where he's forcing him to watch the evangelical show on full volume it's like, it's like you're just showing your weakness and your reliance on institutional power and it's just really rubbing that in. And then after, like, the book The Events of Hannibal are set after um, Dr. Chilton has obviously been eaten. Uh, which is a kind of Ex Machina thing at the end of Science of the Lambs. I'm having an uh, old friend for dinner. Yeah, it's such, it's
2: such a dumb line, um, I fucking love it. It's a dumb line that's
0: perpetuated throughout the yeah. horror like all oh, adaptations. Yeah, it, oh my god, it's so cheesy <laughs> like how they do it sometimes. Like, but, I've
2: not I've not uh, seen it, but some friends of mine went to see the Hannibal Lecter musical uh, of the Obradley <laughs> production. Wait, Silent- there's a the Hannibal Lecter music I that that was called <laughs> Silence, the musical. They oh, told, really. doing oh the re- that's actually quite clever. And I'm doing the terrible thing here of repeating someone else's anecdote, but they told me probably be, because end, it ends with Hannibal Lecter saying, I lost going there, we're having an old friend for dinner, and then he walks off stage, then comes back on again, looks at the audience, and says, you see, it's a pun, I'm actually going to eat him.
0: Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, that's, and, and such is the fate of Dr. Frederick Chilton, who he mentions, um... He basically says, um, well, no, it's, it's I think it's supposed to be Claris, Claris Starling's kind of inner monologue. She says, like, oh, yeah, uh, Dr. Chilton, who was punished for thinking, for the crime of thinking he was as smart as Hannibal, um, which is kind of beautiful. Because, you know, one well, just kind of as a dramatic point, the tension that there's, it's not just the risk of death, but the risk of humiliation is potent, potent in the Hannibal series. Mm, because
2: that's what how um Will Graham describes the um the first Hannibal killing we see. Um I forget her name, but the uh woman he kills and pulls out her lungs. And like he and Will is really disgusted by this because you know his whole thing is that he can he you know he's a super empath. And he kind of feels or in the way it's presented it's almost like he feels Hannibal's contempt for this woman. Mm. And it is and precise, precisely the way that she is killed is deliberately Incredibly, senselessly sadistic, simply for the purpose, simply because that's for the purpose of humiliation in and of itself.
0: Yeah, and I- sorry, God.
1: no, I was going to say, but I think that's one of the that's maybe why the the I, I suppose we're all going to have a tendency here to focus on the TV adaptation more than the books. But I think the strength of that adaptation over everything else is the fact that um, the the imminence to Hannibal that is in that. Version because he's not behind bars. No, like, he's 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 amongst everybody. It's the only, like it's the only adaptation where we see Hannibal that play. Yeah, exactly. that's yeah. that's
0: a crucial thing actually. Like there was a I think there's some sort of statistical uh in, in point of interest around the fact that I think it's something like uh, in Silence of the Lambs, uh, Anthony Hopkins was one of the one of the only figures to um, have ever won an Academy Award for a character who's only on screen for like at best 15 minutes Mm. uh which is quite significant but um one of the points i was just going to bring in about that idea of humiliation um and kind of emotion like vulnerability which i think is a core thing a core theme through this um is is it just occurred to me that it's kind of an extension of how we mythologize psychiatry in a sense that um the psychiatrist is always the most dangerous figure because they know you from the inside out and they can like they can strip you bare mentally they like they lay open all your vulnerabilities and so there's that real tension there but this is this is actually something i found freud self-mythologized about himself like there because you know his his writings um they've been taken and kind of put in very analytical contexts and that's how we mostly know about freud But when you actually read the original text, they're very literary. And one of the things he does throughout, possibly without knowing it is he's, he's sort of dramatizing his role as psychiatrist. And so there's one line in uh, that always stuck out for me in, in the interpretation of dream or in the interpretation of dreams, where he says like, I'm not going to be talking about any of my own dreams. I think it would be inappropriate given my status as the doctor. <laughs> yeah. It's like, but yeah, it's like my my role is to sit back and watch everyone else's madness unfold because mine is something I keep very close.
2: You know. He said just snorting more. More cocaine. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. And being... and, and get, just endlessly bragging about the fact that he introduced it into kind of like common dental practice um <laughs> which he then describes one of his own dreams about like analyzing his own dreams to say oh yeah this is of course because I'm, I'm really proud of that um this is even before i started psychiatry you know he's like i've just become more brilliant since and, um, <laughs> but yeah that's i mean that is um one of the core things that i think is important to raise in the context of the uniqueness of the brian well the distinction of the brian fuller series from the hannibal one is thomas harris notably retroactively fucked up hannibal
2: oh yeah yeah um
0: and the way he did that was by uh creating hannibal as a sympathetic and vulnerable figure because what he um what happens in uh the in the book hannibal um that's mentioned what's you know um mentioned in the book i don't even know if it comes into the Regrettable adaptation, nah, but so um, but the idea that he was forced to his sister Misha was killed and he was forced to eat her, and so uh, suddenly Hannibal is a little child again, and he's being and he's just living through his trauma of having to eat his own sister, and he's suddenly a vulnerable and sympathetic character, and then the book Hannibal Rising is all about that.
2: First, yeah, because I remember approaching that point, I. Uh, when I was watching the show because I knew that I'd been told that was the because uh, I, I hadn't read it but i have been told that's like the big reveal and I thought well that's shit isn't it yeah. and I was such a relief that Brian Fuller does not do that and in fact I think it's, it's brilliant one, yeah. it's one of the whole one of the big strengths of the series actually and uh, I'm going re- to do say, the line do the bit I'm going I'm to do the line but maybe we'll lay over the line with the actual line but uh, quite possibly quite possibly but when he says "I nothing happened to me in that place I happened to that place mm. uh, which which to my mind is a really good segue For me talking about Friedrich Nietzsche
0: And um, well I, I just think like The subtext of that is He ate his sister Deliberately consciously And fucking loved it that's, yes, that's where yeah. that's coming from. I d- I, maybe that's an, a completely irrelevant addition. But... Uh, well, I was going to
1: say. I mean, then this is maybe something to come back to, not to derail, derail from Frederick Nietzsche. No, that's but, what this is, I... but this we'll, is what I... Nietzsche's. We're never.
0: <laughs> we are on a fucking like impossible course towards bar- barreling towards Nietzsche yeah. and going to happen. <laughs> but the one thing I've found in interesting... the real
2: Frederick Nietzsche is inside us all along. <laughs> <laughs> oh God,
1: um, what a meaningless thing for me to say. <laughs> But the one thing I, the one thing that is, in, I can I can almost appreciate what Thomas Harris was trying to do with that in a way, I mean, and 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 I also think it links back to queerness in a sense, mm-hmm. where it reminds me of this. I was reading something uh, it just it was on the side whilst reading in pre- preparation for this podcast, um, but the, the the connection that what the reason that Hannibal is how he is is is, is supposedly un- because he's living under that shadow. Post war shadow of Nazism, and that this is what the Nazis did to him. Because I think it is, though. It is the Nazis, yeah. yeah.
0: They're like Lithuanian collaborators, but yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> that's it, a, I I
1: the, but it reminded me of this uh, this, this point that this, uh, this guy called Paul Mann makes in a book that's one of my favourite books of, um, called um, Masso Criticism. And he makes the, a connection, which I'm not sure how it connects, because this is basically a half baked thought, but he connects. Um, Nazism and the AIDS crisis through um, silence and so that the, 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 the image of um, the logo of silence equals death that was so prevalent during the AIDS crisis used the pink triangle that was like the, the Nazis would use to label who was homosexual um, and it's like a, a subversion of that symbology to sort of say well you know silence on this issue yeah is is to it equates it somehow with a kind of holocaust um but in thinking about hannibal in that context it's as if that yeah the the fact that he is a psychiatrist who analyzes everybody else but keeps everything else inside it's as if that his uh his especially in that adaptation the homoeroticism of his cannibalism has this weird tension there? I think where it's it's his way of, if not speaking about it, of at least making it kind of know the trauma that he went through at the hands of the great evil of the twentieth century, or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not mm-hmm. sure how that connects to um, science of the lambs, but I think that there's something in there too with Buffalo Bill, right?
0: Yeah, I was, I, I've, I've got kind of a. I, I want to save my Buffalo Bill content. Yeah, right? no, for yeah, but, sure, for sure. But, um, basically, one of the things I was actually going to talk about, like that 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 term you mentioned, silence, uh, it goes back to, well, um, there's an essay, well, I was reading kind of an essay which cited quite heavily uh, Prim- Primo Levi, and like kind of the work of the Frankfurt School to um, look into kind of the pathology of National Socialism. And one of the reasons why um, the... I think it was Primo Levi talks about the Holocaust as a thing that was unspeakable because it was like a crime of this magnitude as, you know, arg- I'm, I'm, try- I'm trying to, I'm, I'm sudden caveats oh, no. of like the genocide of the Native Americans suddenly springs to mind. I, th- but I in- think
2: it is, think it's that it is, uh, there were there good reasons to describe the Holocaust as unique in history because of the, enorm- of the industrial level of planning and scale that goes into it. Mm. While the, um, uh, the genocide of Native Americans is something that happens gradually over probably about over 100 years. is a, a slow process of conquest rather than uh, a power determining that a certain number of the people who already live in its borders should be um, removed in as in scientific and inverted commas, humane manner as possible or humane for them. Not for them, not for the Jews themselves, but humane from their perspective, so how so they can preserve their own psychological wellbeing uh, there are, good, there, are, good, there, are re, there are good arguments to make about it about its uniqueness in that regard, though um similar things can and
1: should be said about the Armenian uh genocide by the Ottoman Turks mm. I guess that that's the 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 explicit example of the holocaust just I guess it does actually end up tying into Nietzsche in an indirect way um because one of my and they made this I guess again is another heart based question for for asking. Um, Hannibal is a, a non-present <laughs> fictional figure in this conversation. But um, the one thing that I love about Bataille, for instance, or Prima Levi, or lots of those post-war thinkers, uh, and it's something that you see throughout culture, it's the same with like Jean-Luc Godard's... Um, what's... Uh, is it Historiatic Cinema? Or... No, 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 what did he do? I can't remember.
0: A bit <laughs> Maybe. Anyway. <laughs> well,
1: there's, there's that... There's that, there's that common conversation in french culture specifically after the second world war where it's like well how is uh, how is cinema possible after the holocaust how is philosophy possible after the holocaust and I guess that almost the, the, the connection that and I mean Bataille asking that question is explicitly related to Nietzsche and the influence the, or the apparent influence of his thought on that regime but then the question also extending that becomes you know what's the, what's the power or potential of psychiatry after the Holocaust, for someone like Hannibal, yeah, and it seems to be almost that it's his inability to maybe grasp with that question, at least as as he specifically experienced it, that leads him to to almost put what he's learned to one side mm. and have to express himself in this
0: other yeah. diabolical way. I'm, I'm glad that Queer Seasons got back onto fascism. It was going to happen. Um, the other point, like I. I, I think I was fairly on the nose about it when I wrote it up in the synopsis, but I think I should point out, so, in Hannibal Rising, and I'm just going to say, Hannibal Rising, come, like, if you divide it from the, um, what some, well, which up until very recently with your wonderfully cutting uh, insights is, is the fact that, like, there is to some extent a ruining, or a ruining of one element of the Hannibal character through that. But, um, in Hannibal Rising, um, one of the things they point out is the fact I mentioned well, I, when I was writing up the synopsis of um, the biography, he was born in 1933. Um, he never meant it's never, I don't think it's stated anywhere that he was born in 1933. It's mentioned that he's eight years old in 1942.
2: That's not how uh,
0: time works. 41? 1941. Maths. So, maths. So maths. you have to just like. It was only at that moment when I was working backwards to try and get, like, write, state what year he was born in. It's like, oh, that's 1933. That's the year the Nazis come to power. And so it's like, oh, shit, no, his history is exactly shared with Nazism. Mm. And, yeah, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty, pretty notable. Yeah. Um, makes you think. Makes Damn, damn, <laughs> makes you think. Well, that's, maybe, that's the, maybe that's the
1: concrete connection for Nietzsche. So, in the sense that, the, 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 I guess, the question of Nietzsche's philosophy broadly summarised as part of an already a a tradition that's sort of going back through the revolutions of Europe prior to him anyway um, is the sense that you have to 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 recalibrate the morals of your era and to understand how they've been formed and that's something that you kind of get where Bataille picks up that point explicitly uh, in his work Literature and Evil most explicitly where he's sort of saying that um, any moral um, well tr- society is grounded by its transgressions any moral society any moralism uh, is constituted by the limits of what people are capable of in this particular moment and that's where the holocaust kind of undoes that and it calls Nietzsche back into question in that sense of, of like what is the what is the what is left of the overman um, when you have that sort of event and um, that completely ruptures everything before it and extends those goal those goalposts of uh, transgression that is that is forming society stretches those goalposts so far apart to the unthinkable that there's nothing but an abyss of questions that comes out from that. Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think it's time to <laughs> hit the Nietzsche. and it's. I feel this is going to be like a three-part attack from different directions on Nietzsche, because I think each of us has kind of got a slightly different take. Um, yeah. So, it's kind of you, I mean, you were saying in um, in prep for this, you were almost reluctant to bring up Nietzsche, because it seemed too on the nose, it seemed too obvious, because, of yeah. course, there's that, you know, the distinction I was talking about between, like, um, Hannibal is the born serial killer, everyone else is a made serial killer, everyone else is the imperfect one to his platonic whole of serial killer. Um, but... I mean, where, where were you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: so uh, like I said, there was... I mean, it felt inevitable that Nietzsche had to be brought up. But again, like you said, there is just this um, uh, obviousness to it. But at the same at the same time, you kind of just have to answer that call sometimes. But um, the reason why Nietzsche kind of always raises his head in discussions like this about the... Um, and especially about serial killers, I think, if, if, if we when we do start to engage in a kind of a more philosophical discourse about about killing and its relationship with desire is
0: and, and uh, it, yeah and it's also just like we're leaving we're, we're moving on to the next phase of the podcast so i'm just gonna one final parting shot serial killers are loser pieces of shit and all the mythologizing we're talking about is entirely erroneous and bad thank you
2: uh <laughs> the um but yeah so um it was interesting going back and reading Nietzsche and prep for this actually because I haven't read him for quite a few years, and because he does have the you know, the reputation as like the perennial uh, philosopher of the disaffected adolescent male, which isn't an which isn't entirely fair, but also is a reputation he has for a reason, it's, and it is a good reason. And I read the um uh the, I read uh, the Antichrist again. In the run-up to this, and I was just begging for death towards the end because it just gets, because it does get a bit fucking dull, and he just keeps on screeching. But, um but there is um the reason why we need to talk about Nietzsche in this regard is because, like you've already said, Matt. But the but one the the question that Nietzsche gives us is about what do we ground our values upon. And that is a serious and important philosophical question that um, is always going to be with us and won't ever go away. And Nietzsche does make really interesting and original contributions to that question. And how it relates to Hannibal and our mythologizing of the serial killer generally is, I think, the most obvious connection is the concept of the Overman, of the Übermensch, the Superman. Because for Nietzsche, the um, It is Nietzsche's most well-known contribution to popular thinking, if nothing else. And uh, Although it's the most common translation of it Is still Superman But this isn't a particularly good translation of it Because uh, for several reasons Like mensch means human not man Uber means above or over Which has connotations of superiority But over man has become Slightly, slightly more like academically preferred translation I'm probably going to jump between all three As I continue to, to uh, drink wine Shall get uh, the next
0: bottle of wine by the way?
2: Yeah shall we pause yeah. while you do that? Yeah 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 have more fruit because it's like I'm the only one in whom it is in reaching range. <laughs> hey, John,
0: hey, John. hey, Lucy. This one has a cross on the bottle. <laughs> yes, that's why I bought it's it. Like, it's like something an Anglo Catholic would pick.
2: <laughs> it's a Coptic cross. You can tell because of the number of dots on the end of the arms. Twelve for the apostles,
1: you see.
0: <laughs> Holy shit.
2: <laughs> I'm I'm not cool. Yeah, no, it's
1: always good to, to semi-automatically ground your wine bottle when you're drinking it, I think.
2: I mean, it's a bit more interesting than Casalero del Diablo, isn't it? <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, who was who our sponsor today, actually? It's a Sainsbury's Taste the Difference Bottom, I just noticed. it's, And I'm going to. This, is it French? Must be French. Yes, it says France right in front of my eyes. Uh, I'm not, it is a Viognier Indication Geographique Protégé Pays d'oc. There
1: you go. You'll have to expand on that later as a Patrick Bateman style, you bludgeon one
0: of us over the head with it and
1: talk about <laughs> how this is actually a truly gracious bottle of wine. I, I do think
0: that's right. I think it appears to be a Viognier indica- indica- Indication Geographique Protégé Pays doc.
2: I'm just going to hold my copy of Red Dragon at Lucy's face right now. (laughs) (laughs) I just
0: figured, like, because, like, there was a lot of... uh, The the, the subject matter we were discussing today did more or less decide our choice of drinks, which was otherwise going to be a pack of brew dogs.
2: Friedrich Nietzsche Friedrich Nietzsche Right, so the reason why I think it's important The (laughs) (laughs) The reason why I think it's important to talk about the Ubermensch In this regard Is because we need to, again, think about why The figure of Hannibal Lecter And the figure of the serial killer More broadly mythologised Is still an attractive figure uh, In culture Is still an attractive figure And that's because there is an extent to which I think there is a na- there is a natural human desire to want to be able to do whatever you want to get away with it. Not this not a desire to do elaborate sex murders necessarily, but still there is. Some, this is again one of the reasons why Hannibal is such an attractive character because he does just get he gets to do the things he wants to do, and he does them really well, and he's really clever about it. And there's lots of really universal instincts that everybody has that makes that. Desirable makes it cool. Competence is fun and interesting. And I want to be as good as Hannibal Lecter at my things, like if you're going to church and things. But, um, but um, so I think it's interesting if we. So I think God's just great. <laughs> and if Hannibal Lecter's your God, then even better. Yeah. I actually I do have uh, things I want to oh, talk we're about. Getting that. We're getting there. <laughs> I've got Hannibal and God coming up here. But anyway, I want to read. I'm going to read a, a few bits from uh, "Thus Spoke Zarathustra." Um, here, where, where, where Nietzsche introduces, I believe this is where he introduces the ubermention, i will be embarrassed if that's not actually the case, but uh, yeah, so I'm just going to read a few bits and bobs here. Um, Zarathustra being this character that Nietzsche creates, who is kind of like this philosopher who comes down from the mountains to teach people um, the importance of re-evaluating their existence in the light of the death of God, right? And when he, the first town he comes down to, he teaches them this, saying I teach you the Superman. That's the how my translation puts it. I teach you the Superman. Man is something that should be overcome. What have you done to overcome him? All creatures hitherto have created something beyond themselves. And do you want to be the ebb of this great tide and return to the animals rather than overcome man? What is the ape to men? A laughing stock or a painful embarrassment? and just so shall man be to the Superman, a laughing stock or painful embarrassment. He goes on to say, Behold, I teach you the Superman. The Superman is the meaning of the earth. Let your will say the Superman shall be the meaning of the earth. I entreat you, my brothers, remain true to the earth and do not believe those who speak to you of superterrestrial hopes. In truth, man is a polluted river, One must be a sea to receive a polluted river and not be defiled. Behold, I teach you the Superman. He is this sea. In him your great contempt can go under. What is the greatest thing you can experience? It is the hour of your great contempt, the hour in which even your happiness grows loathsome to you, and your reason and your virtue also, the hour when you say, what good is my happiness? It is poverty and dirt and a miserable ease. But my happiness should justify existence itself have you ever spoken thus have you ever cried thus ah that i've heard your crying thus it is not your sin but your moderation that cries to heaven your very meanness is sinning cries to heaven where is the lightning to lick you of its tongue where is the madness with which you should be cleansed behold i teach you the superman he is this lightning he is this madness Actually, before going further, one of the things I want to make say here and now, as you hopefully would have got from buying collections there Nietzsche was so fucking readable and he's such a good writer and it's actually really fun reading Nietzsche out loud because he was such a brilliant stylist, and I just having flashbacks doing that to um, when I was doing my undergraduate degree when we took uh, and I took the Nietzsche module because I was twenty and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was a disaffected young man once uh, and um and still am. And uh, I remember just dominating our like study sessions by insisting on doing all of the readings out loud because it's just something so irresistible about his prose. Um, all this being said, ground to get back again on Hannibal and about uh, is, is the language that Nietzsche uses about the Superman is that he is, and this links into what we've been saying about Hannibal is presented as superhuman, as posthuman. There's something so alien about him, and so alien about. Ha- how serial killers put are conceivable to us because their desires are so pathological um, uh, for, for, for us that there is something of the quality of the Superman there in that they are individuals who are driven by desires which and values which are entirely of their own devising. Or again, in our mythologizing of them because they're pathological pieces of shit who destroy people's lives, um, and especially this is true of Hannibal because Hannibal is someone who is always presented as someone who is completely in charge of himself and the environment he finds himself in. To the extent to which I have always felt, you know, like watching Silence of the Lambs and watching the series that he is only ever in prison for as long as he wants to be. <laughs> like, um, regardless of like what the convention of the plot say, no, he's there because he has chosen to be there and he is just waiting the other time will amuse him to leave. Um, and the, uh, and as well as that, and this goes back to what I was saying about the Um, The freedom, absolute freedom that Hannibal and the mythologized image of the serial killer presents itself to us. But how Nietzsche talks about the Superman as being like madness, as being like lightning. That there is something explosive and forceful and transformative in the Superman. And in that mythology, and again it's a mythology, it's not true, but in that cultural mythology... That is exemplified in Hannibal. There is this explosive liberty to it, this energetic rising up and self-transforming and world-transforming potential to it. And I think this is why you, there's something fucking cool about it. For that, that's something that um, I think that that's where that comes from uh, in lots of ways. That that, and this is why Nietzsche is such an attractive figure for. And again, that stereotype is there for a reason for typically for disaffected young men <laughs> who don't know how to talk to girls or talk to boys, in my case, um, that there's something so like odd awesome about the idea that um, but you could become anything. You could um, be this world's transformative force or if nothing else, you could be someone who is completely in charge of your own life and your own relationships and you'll, everything that will happen to you will happen on its own on your terms and no one else's terms, those are, and those are are ideals which in themselves aren't unhealthy. Um, There's something that, I I think it's really important, I read Nietzsche when I read him, and I think um, he's a really good person to read if you're going, if you're in that frame of mind as well, if you do need to have this um, voice telling you that actually you are the one that can do things. But again, so many, so many caveats have to apply to that because, you know, the, like Nietzsche's complete and willful disregard for socio-economic reality that most people actually face, Nietzsche was by 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 our standards and by our I mean just us three in this room Nietzsche was a very wealthy person. Like he could live a life of of just he could just travel wherever he wanted, just write books. That was his life because he retired early on a pe- on a really obviously a really really generous pension (laughs) Um, but um, so that I mean that is the the falling apart of that the fact that that these things are only possible if you don't have to worry about where your next meal is coming from which I don't know if that I don't know if the biography, that, the biographies we have of him now would disagree with this, but the impression one gets of Nietzsche is that he's someone who didn't need to worry about that because he was a man of independent means and all of these actual concrete material questions aren't things that he has to deal with. He can just be this travelling intellectual um, who can go on retreat to the mountains and spend all day walking and writing and that let that be his life. And there is, and, you know, there's so much of Nietzsche's writings is just... Um, because you know, he is a fascinating figure but there's loads of reasons loads of reasons why I don't want to defend him and and why I think he is very deserving of criticism that his 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 obvious contempt for ordinary working people which is present throughout his throughout his corpus um again in in that towards the end of the antichrist and this is a uh, reminds me of, one of my old um one of the um, assistant tutors at uh, my university to my undergraduate once said to me that she, when she read *Beyond On Good and Evil, there's bits of it made her so angry she threw the book across the room and it split in two. And there are bits there are most like that reading The Antichrist when he just starts talking about how the laws of Manu are just an inherently more healthy um, religious text than anything in the Bible because it just takes as read that society should be hierarchical because most people are scum like, oh,
1: Go fuck yourself, Friedrich Nietzsche Um... <laughs> But I would challenge that to an extent because I feel like, not a Hindu scholar, I don't know what the laws of man mm, say. Well, I, mean, no, <laughs> I mean, neither do I. But the the one thing that I see is this tension between how he's perceived and what he was writing about. In this sense, because I mean, I mean, as far as it goes of him being a man of independent means, I think that what must be remembered that he was a he was a prodigy, um, and that he was the, he was the youngest professor. At the University of wherever it was, I think in Germany. Yeah, he yeah. was the he was the youngest professor ever. He had, a f- he had he might the yeah, even he had full prof- hold that title. He had the
2: full professorship when he was twenty four in philology of the University of Basel. Yeah, fuck yeah. 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 that guy. Yes. Yeah. Is <laughs> like, I this is what I mean. What
1: I was saying about what contempt for anyone who's more successful. <laughs> yeah, <Yes. laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're showing a
0: lot of kind of vulnerability in ourselves. <laughs> right?
1: <what> <laughs> but I feel like as terms as I mean, this is and again, this is not. I'm not very much of a Nietzsche scholar in that sense, and I couldn't. Uh, I can't remember what he said in certain points, but the sense of, um, uh, of, of the overman at least. And then and this comes down to the, 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 the tension of his translation. And it always makes me think of, um, of Bataille's book on Nietzsche that was translated fairly recently by Stuart Kendall. And in the introduction to that book, he has a, he openly talks about why he called it that because in French, it's so Nietzsche. Um, You'll have to tell me what that means. So, so, <laughs> yeah. well, exactly. So, so the saw being the, the prefix that we'd have for surrealism or whatever else. And so it's, uh, um, he was, he wasn't sure whether, whether he called it on nature because that's the general thing. Yeah. Sorry.
0: And mistranslated that Sarah, of course, means on, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> but on, but also Sooth. like, uh, but, but, yeah. but the
1: tension for for Kendall is that it's not, it doesn't just mean on in the sense that in a contained sense, what was, important for Bataille, and likewise in channeling this image of the overman, was that he wanted to produce a text that was not only on, but through Nietzsche. Of Nietzsche? No, not even in that sense that it's grounded. In the sense that, like we talk about surrealism, it's a a depiction of, um, a depiction that is through and beyond reality. and that's, I think that's the, that is the, the tension that is so central to Bataille that is on and through Nietzsche, but also beyond him. And I think my, my interpretation of when Nietzsche has this, um, this, this, this deplorable attitude towards working people is, is, is a sense that would later be taken up by someone like Jean-Francois Lyotard, where he would write about this, um, the sense in the, 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 the slave mentality or the, the, the mentality that's been, in, um, uh, impressed upon, uh, Homogeneous peasantry is the sense that the 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 abusing the mentality of enjoying your own oppression, and so Leoton has this really controversial passage where he says that you know uh, working people loved to be in the mines, they loved the, the toil and they loved the stress of it, and they loved the horror of it um, but only but but that 's precisely the 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 what the overman brings to that sort of reading, and that 's not a reading to sort of dismiss these people but to sort of say. You are only you only, uh, you won't they only have that sense of a uh, desirable, they don't desire their own oppression for the sense that they don't they can't imagine an outside to it, mm. and so, in, in the sense of yeah, saying that you're a sea and of uh, in that passage, and and, uh, and and wanting to take on these oppressions and still be able to to um, to expand beyond them, um, but but I mean, I guess at least to come back to Nietzsche's philology, one thing that I think that's worth noting and how he gained his fame was that at the time in Germany, he was um there was this, uh, not an obs- well I guess it was an obsession in a sense, there was an obsession with the ancient Greeks and the philosophy of that time and the culture of that time, and there was a sense that uh, Germany in itself, and this is where the, the tension comes between how influential Nietzsche was on the, the, the ideologies of the Third Reich, was that Germany at that time was aware of its own constitution and wanted to try and better itself. Um, and I guess the tension of his work is where that direction goes, and the misreading and the misreading that comes from this stereotype of, of Nietzschean 20 year olds who are just disaffected comes from the fact of like, is it, are you bettering yourself um, in a pretentious way, in a way that's, that's uh, uh, full of ego, or are you bettering yourself in the sense that you are going beyond your means by your own understanding of yourself and uh, reaching the outside in the sense of the radically new? I think that that's what Nietzsche was so often pushing for and that it's, it's very, from what's happened to his work since, it's it's so easy to, to misread that in a sense that he was pissing on people's parades or whatever else. But I feel like he always had this quite radical political sense to him that yeah, um, push beyond that.
2: Yeah, because there's, um, as well as that, it has to be borne in mind that Nietzsche was not a systematic philosopher. Very deliberately, um, uh, he wasn't a, a systematic philosopher. He was quite suspicious of um, attempts at arriving at such a thing as well. He was very much, he would, um, like i said like uh, mentions, is is like his most well known idea it does it doesn't feature particularly prominently in his work not as prominently as a concept like a will to power um does it's it, he would um he would play with ideas in a way that's actually like really quite intellectually interesting he would um adopt different masks to see where it would take him because that's what he was interested because in. like he like, and that's one one really interesting idea he had a notion of his was he was quite suspicious of the search for truth for its own sake. He was very interested in the idea. That let's just see where a particular way of thinking will take us. Let's not worry about if it, it's true or not. Let's just say, is it healthy? Is it vital? Um, so there are, um, and one of the things that results in in our reading of Nietzsche is that it's difficult to arrive at any kind of attempt at systematizing him after the fact. Yes, because his sister um, famously attempted to do that with um, the book the will to power which was composed which was um, composed of discarded notes from a book project of the same name which Nietzsche had abandoned before he uh, um, before he became severely ill um, but um, so there are things so there are statements in his philosophy which is, in if you were to compare different works of his they have a simi- they all have similar thrusts and energies to them but they are importantly distinct from each other and there are things in them which just don't quite Relate with one another, like in, um, like in the Antichrist. I think he does. I mean, um, all, all what you said being read and very interesting it is. But there are statements he makes in the Antichrist which I think are, to my mind, are, are deeply reprehensible. Where he uh, where he uh, where he uh, attacks a socialist movement for he says for denying, uh, you know, these kinds of people. The treasures available to them, or like the honors that are available to them, because in in this piece of writing, his mind is that he does, like at this point, he does he seems to believe that societies are naturally hierarchical, hierarchical because some people are brainy, some people are strong, most people are somewhere in between, and societies just organise themselves like that. And to his mind, he does, and the way he seems to talk about it, he does generally seem to have in mind the idea that. The people at the bottom end of the pyramid, the mediocre, the herd, are just there because that's just what they're like, and they can't get it. They can't get the stuff that's above them. But in in the gay science, there's a very there's a passage where he's trying to respond to the socialist challenge, and the way he does so is by suggesting, and this is a horribly colonialist mentality he has, is saying that well the like the disaffected working masses of Europe should do they should go to the colonies they should um, and then they'll find themselves in a place where to his mind like the great work of civilization building hasn't happened yet so they can be that, but over mm-hmm. there and he also says that they, they we should just like Europe would do really good to replace their disaffected workers by bringing in loads of people from China because he says that he put it their Asiatic coolness will be a good addition to the European <laughs> sensibility because Nietzsche like Nietzsche was, by his standards, having very, very progressive views on race, but by modern standards, he was a racist. Yeah. He did believe in racial dispositions. He did believe that miscegenation was a thing that could bring down a culture, whilst also having, again, by his, by his culture standards, extremely radically progressive views about, um, about race. But,
0: yeah. And I just think, like, well, just generally, a huge number of points come up out of that. Um... Pertaining to um, sort of back, you know, to the connection to Hannibal and sort of the, the queering of Nietzsche, which I want to talk about in a moment. But um, I think well, just just for one thing, like the ethnographic dimension of Nietzsche is something that gets a lot of primacy in that, you know, in just like the popular conception of Nietzsche, because that's that's the reason why he's so pre- pre- kind of, the, you know, the the reduced version of Nietzsche is um, identified as like, oh, basically Nazism, or basically a justification for Nazism, but the way he uses ethnography is a very interesting thing and um, when you, you mentioned earlier his uh, fixed, his obsession with the ancient Greeks, um, a lot of, one of his most notable early works was The Birth of Tragedy, which is his, his analysis of why uh, Greek culture was so um, successful and so unique. I think the term he uses is... Um, a nation among civilizations as a genius among the masses um but it was kind of he identified it as a kind of a sociological and theological kind of convergent point which i do want to talk about in a minute but um his whole well i haven't read it in a long time but like it seemed like his whole project was basically um he saw his whole thing was like about the reintroduction of the Apo- the balance of the Apolline and the Dionysiac and how he saw this great, the next ancient Greece happening in Germany. Yeah. And that comes from an ethnographic dimension to some extent, uh, although... Though I think yeah. it's worth emphasizing
1: that that's, it wasn't his, um, it wasn't a personal obsession. It was a national
0: obsession. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, everyone. I mean, also there was a lot of... Um, especially kind of like it came to a fore in Nazi Germany, because one of the great anxieties of uh, Germany was the fact that they didn't have a, um, they couldn't depict themselves as having a um, classical history. And in European history, generally, there is this strong kind of, there's a pattern you see over and over again, where everyone wants to try and make, give themselves an equivalence to ancient, like golden age Greece. Uh, We saw it in, you know, this is going back to Virgil, uh, Virgil's Aeneid, uh, the way, the fact he, um, he's um, talking, he's creating a fictionalized, propagandized version of Roman history, identifying them as the descendants of the Trojans to show we're as ancient and and cultured as the Greeks, uh, because even though we've conquered them, There's that saying, um, captured Greece captivates Rome, um, because there was this still lingering um, underdoggery culturally. And the fact that Greeks were all around them occupying cultural institutions Um, in the same way. I feel that like um, this was something that really niggled the Nazis because they saw uh, Jews as occupying places of um, cultural a disproportionate amount of um, prominence in cultural institutions, which has endured um and you know is still a very central tenet of modern fascism today but so mm. back to the greeks though so we saw that with um you know the the aeneid was a work of state-sponsored propaganda to show that they had an ancient greek history then we get a more or less sequel to that where um in england thomas of monmouth uh writes uh, the history of the kings of the of great britain where he identifies the brit the true british people brackets the welsh as having been the descendants of the Trojans, because Aeneas is, I think he's the grandson of uh No, um, Brutus, who founds mm. Great Britain and defeats all the giants and claims the land as his own. And then he's like the progenitor of the line that uh, results in King Arthur. Um, he, he presents them as being the successors to Troy. That's why we've got that whole mythology around London as the second Troy and how there's like the centre stone is supposedly a stone come from Troy that was brought over. Um, the second but,
2: Troy the four, the third Rome and possibly the second Jerusalem yes exactly <laughs> um,
0: and there was a version of this in Nazi Germany as well because there was this like lost text of uh, Tacitus um, where Tacitus is talking about the German people and because this was like not a readily available source it meant that um, they were like oh fantastic now there's a text about the Germans which um, will undoubtedly speak about us in an identically positive light as having an innate uh, essential um, spirit of Germanness that is every bit as brilliant and ru- rugged and powerful as that of the Greeks, the Franks did the same uh, in france but um but and then then they eventually found the manuscript of Tacitus, which was a weird sort of like Indiana Jones type adventure from what I recall a documentary <laughs> yeah, about it. Yeah. Then they find it and it's actually, no, the Germans are a b- barbarous, savage, weak, ineffectual people. It's, it's interesting
2: and, that uh, you say that, and I have a horrible th- I actually can't remember if this is something I've mentioned on this podcast before or not, but I've got to go for it anyway. Um, it's, it, when I'm... Um, but, but, um, the pressure to create a self uh, to create a mythology for the, in, in that regard, the classical mythology um, kind of manifested itself in very weird ways in nineteenth century nineteenth um, century German speaking work Because the guy I have in mind here is the Austrian Guido von List, mm-hmm. uh, who was not an aristocrat, had no right to the fond um, prefix, so just stuck it in his name, and he um, originated the kind of like the mystical element of folkish nationalism because his reading of uh, Tacitus. Uh, and in his and his uh, history of the German peoples, he just goes on this um what he claimed to be a clairvoyantly inspired rereading of it. But he said that actually the tri it, actually Tacitus didn't comprehend how um uh, complex and uh, and brilliant the Germanic civilization was. And when he's talking about these three different tribes, actually these are three different castes, and at the top is the cast of the like the Gnostic priesthood of the Odinist priests, and um And he develops this very, this bizarre, completely and totally ahistorical history of the, of the Germanic peoples, which, um, presents them as the, as, as the heirs to a lost civilization of racially pure supermen. Uh, and, and this is where a lot of the, um... The mythology that uh, worked its way into Nazism, it was never a central feature as people make it out to be. Um, but where, like, the occult dimension of it comes from, because that's where the Thule stuff comes from. Because um, <laughs> the Greeks mentioned the island of uh, Ultima, Ultima Thule, Ultima Thule, or Ultima Thule, and uh, List claims that's where the last priests of the uh, of the Odinist religion ended up, and that's where. The, you know, the Thule Society, the Thule Society, that's why they chose that name. Mm. And yet a lot of that, the occult mythology of um, Nazism comes from uh, people like um, von Liszt and von Liebenfels. Uh, again, again, it wasn't an aristocrat, I just adopted that term. Uh, queer season is talking about the Nazis again. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> also,
0: just a side note, during the edit of this, I am going to play that entire... Sh- bit you just gave over the track Lost Wisdom by Bersin. <laughs> Please, do not! Okay. <laughs> we can cut that. <laughs> um, well, that's this, I think that yeah. that's
1: this tension with mythology that probably, well, can bring us back to serial killers in a way, is that this is what I think that Nietzsche would almost be abhorrented by. And again, this is, I guess, coming back to what you were saying about Antichrist and whatever else, that it reminds me of this um, uh, Schelling's work on mythology where he makes this distinction in his later lectures on this topic, which says that mythology's ground or, well, we, they think that mythology is what, you know, gives a, pe- a, a people a sense of meaning in an abstract sense. Um, but his twist on that is that no, it's mythology which produces a people. So the sense that we still produce mythologies today is a sense to how we understand ourselves. I think that Nietzsche knew that quite explicitly, but his tension was sort of similar in that, and again, this I guess this, this all comes from the same moment, that that's the Schelling being a German idealist. Um, and he makes this point that... Um, oh, thank you. Wine going round. Um, uh, if a mythology produces a people, the, the, the issue that I think Nietzsche would have with the way that his work was used later on, as you were saying with his sense of masks, that... Um, you can't consolidate Nietzsche into a single person almost. Hmm. Uh, and the the, the the misstep that his work was later really used for was to precisely do that, to consolidate a German identity, despite it, the fact that he had that shifting narrative.
2: And as well as that, it does need to be stated explicitly that Nietzsche... Um, was directly and specifically contemptuous of German nationalism. Mm, mm, mm. I and mean, he hated nationalisms of all forms because correctly he diagnosed them as ways that people make
1: themselves mm. feel better about and doing And I'm sure anything. Hannibal yeah. would as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, well, that's the uh, tension, I guess. So it's like the, if we, we, um, there's, there's this sense that serial killers are these deplorable mythologizing people. But that's only something that happens after they've been caught, in a sense, and they, have to, they want to perpetuate their influence. Yes. But otherwise, it's something that they're people that are embedded mm. in society. Um, they're carrying out these things after dark, or, well, or in the dark in a sense of that it's an, an inherently secretive thing. And I guess they get that the, um, this uh, thrill from watching how they're impacting society implicitly. Mm. Um, but this but this in this mythologizing sense and this is something that I wonder about Hannibal also is that if a mythology is what produces a people and then the 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 losing that the power of that as a um, when you're pre you know in the midst of your crimes where you're literally producing a mythology within a a community that is com- uh, shifting that community sense of itself how does that function where? Uh, where you get to someone like, maybe not Hannibal actually. He's a, he's kind of he is a tricky one to fit into this analogy, but more generally serial killers, where um, they they end up having that productive sense of producing an image of themselves or other impact on society, and that shifts. And because they're threatened, then they end up consolidating that into a fixed view, which is essentially fascist mm. in the sense that it's uh, it, it, it has to be. Uh, it, it, it sort of solidifies after it feels it's been ruptured, rather than embracing the nature of change and of, and of thinking about who you are more generally, which I think Nietzsche was maybe more um, interested in, of having that tension and having that unruliness and unsettled sense of self.
2: Mm. In E. Uh, um, K. Homo, his, um, his autobiography, which can take, which. Um, <laughs> Oh, it does have to be said It contains chapter headings with wonderful names Like why I am so clever Why I am so wise Why I write such good books And why I am a destiny And it also contains the beautiful line I am not a man, I am dynamite Also contains um, remarks like um, saying, Calling on readers to pluck at his laurels he says, I do not want to be Regarded as um, a fixed figurehead for you to aspire to. I want to be, that's why he says I am dynamized. I want to be an explosive force that produces things that aren't myself.
0: Yeah. Um, I but think is that, is that not like Hannibal, just like tossing a little bit of information here and there to his detectives, just to kind of fuck with them, to say like, oh, may- maybe you're onto something with me, huh? Oh, maybe you have <laughs> understood me.
1: But I guess that's the sense, right? It's the it's the tension of of having a book that, in its presentation, is so arrogant and self centered. I mean, at I'm, the same time, it's is, is produced from in the midst of a madness that is anything but certified. Yeah,
2: I, I I also want to point out about um, the, the title Eke Homo," means behold the man, is a direct and is, is is what it's yeah. what pilot. That says when he brings Jesus out before the crowd behold the man oh, um, but
0: then that's kind of like it's a Christ, com- auto Christ comparison but then it's also kind of like Christ in a context of being belittled by powers of authorities and so it's kind of like a hyper strengthening of the individual presence in that moment of transcending the worldly powers around it. I'm, mm. I'm not going to go into it because it's... Like, it like, fa- like Pilate is Frederick Chilton <laughs> <But> <laughs> Yes, yes.
2: I'm not going to go into it because it is Completely irrelevant to the topic of this episode, which is Hannibal Lecter. But um, Nietzsche's own views about um, the actual historical person of uh, Jesus of Nazareth are very interesting and are very different from his views on what's on the, the Christian religion, which he viewed as a continua I mean, well, I, that's the tension, but, right?
1: It's like the Antichrist is almost in itself a mistranslation. It's, it should be an anti-Christianity,
2: yeah, oh. uh, because the because the terms in. German, though um, uh, it's the same word uh, for the Antichrist and, and Also,
0: Antichrist is something because there, there is a definite section that we're going to bring up the concept of the Antichrist. So this would be a very good thing to come back to as well. Okay. Um, I have like two points I kind of want to bring in at this stage. Uh, one is so I think like one is a point of just necessary grounding uh, in that. So I've, I've reiterated again and again the loser piece of shit narrative that we've gone through. Um, I wanted to kind of, like, bring up the fact that, like you talked about with the, uh, the Superman, he's kind of like the will to power, uh, and the ability to do as one wills for the sake, you know, for the sake of will or just for basic desire. Uh, one of the key differences between um, the, mythologized, the mythologized version of a serial killer and actual serial killers is they present this as like them pursuing their desires in a superhuman capacity, whereas in reality, what we're finding is um, they're, they've perhaps got more of the kind of slave mentality to them than they realize, because they or slave morality to them than they realize, because. They are a slave of their own compulsions, and all this mythologisation is just a desperate attempt to to, uh, smokescreen that fact. And we see this with people like, you know, archetypal figure who was perhaps one of the strongest influences on the Hannibal character, which is Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy, um, he was the very definition, if we're using Quantico terminology, of the organised serial killer. So he would, you know, he would go to extremely elaborate lengths to make his, you know, to do his crimes perfectly and to cover his tracks, which he did very well. But in the act of killing, when they looked at the bodies, these were, he would just like be completely composed up until the point where the killing happened. And then he would go into absolute bestial frenzy mode and completely brutalize these people in a way that you don't really see Hannibal doing. Every move is like fucking Bruce Lee style, just casual flick. <laughs> um, but, um... But that's that's the thing. It's like yeah, it's it's just they're it's a mythologization of a very bestial compulsion. So they're trying to raise themselves above the human, while essentially create pushing themselves below it. And that's why serial killers are often just like living in complete squalor yeah. and disgusting human beings. And
1: well, that's why I see the the if there's a, if there's a relationship between this the Nietzscheism and fascism and Nietzsche and serial killers, it's that same it's that same misstep of. Uh, of trying to overcome yourself through self-destruction mm-hmm. and that being like a the, the tension of a lot of fascism too right that um, fascism is in sen- essentially like a controlled self-destruction because you would you essentially attack the the the, 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 the people that uh, a, a broader people that make up a society mm-hmm. so it's always a, it's, it's a it's a governmental death drive in a sense and the serial killer mm-hmm. embodies that same thing where it, it's a it's an overcoming that, that just always leads to an absolute self-destruction mm. through the destruction of others.
0: Yeah. Mm. The other point I was going to bring in, which is something that El uh, sandifer actually raises, which is uh, some uh, someone who we've had on this show and someone we're going to be bringing um, up in kind of one of the sections coming up, but El uh, sandifer makes the very interesting point of the fact that Hannibal is a European figure. He's a European expat in America, and every well she says that you know every single every single good adaptation of Hannibal but technically I think every single adaptation of Hannibal has had a non-American actor playing him because like Anthony Hopkins is I believe Welsh mm, um yeah. uh I remember... and uh, Brian Cox is Brian Cox British yeah, or does he right, just, British, yeah. yeah. and also uh, ov- obviously Mads Mikkelsen is a Dane um and so it's well one of the things that I just kind of wanted to bring up and I guess like going right back to your introduction uh, a figure that we've covered uh in great detail on the show already but dracula he is sort of like dracula the reason why he is such a strange figure is because he's a kind of he's an aristocratic echo of old europe and it's that aristocratic hauteur ha- uh ha- haughtiness about him that makes him so distinct from his environment and it's the kind of a lot of the high culture, the kind of like um, the 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 kind of Maryland Gothic we see is Chesapeake Gothic. Chesapeake Gothic um, is the is this idea of like here's America trying to do European culture, and mm-hmm. that's why in Hannibal he goes back to Europe because, as uh, Clary Stalin puts it, it's more suitable to his tastes.
2: I mean, mm. It's interesting that you say that because I remember watching um, when I was watching Hannibal the first time through in the third series, when um, which you know the first half of uh, first third of which is. Um, in is it Florence? It is Florence, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I remember like s- uh, thinking explicitly that I wish I lived in the version of Europe Americans think exists, where um, everything yeah. is Baroque, everyone is queer, and everyone speaks five languages. Rather, because <laughs> <that. laughs> mm. <laughs> um, yes, it is the, and I think maybe it's important to emphasise the Americanness of Hannibal in that regard as a creation. Uh, Thomas Harris being an American. Uh, I, I I do also want to mention as a matter of disclosure here, that it was only a few days before recording this but I realised that Robert Harris and Thomas Harris are not the same person. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was one prolific writer of quote-unquote clever thrillers <sighs> whose name I just keep getting wrong. Oh! Overs too.
1: I'm just, oh, there's two! Every time I right. am to an, a, I'm in an airport... Wait, Smith's or Bookshop, and I see Robert Harris, I always end up going up and looking and being like, oh, wait, no, it's not the same person. <laughs> I'm exactly the same. Fatherland was a good book. I hmm. liked that when I
2: read it. Um, Nazis. I, really enjoyed, Nazis again, I yes. really
0: enjoyed the Cicero series. I thought that was very good.
2: Uh, you saw a play version of that with your mother, yes. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay, I'm going okay, <laughs> to. Let's have the story. Let's have, have the story. Okay, so one of my favourite things about the West End production of the Good Theatre, where I saw it a couple of months back, is the fact that in the Cicero series, um after it's in the second part after um, after Caesar has been killed and is it Mark Antony is that no who's the one who took oh it be took, Mark Antony I think it's Mark Antony only um, Mark Antony Caesar like, just died? yeah he's assumed power and there's one scene where uh, Caesar goes to see him and um, and he introduces his he's there and he's like. It's like, I get it, yeah. It's like Shakespeare did it too. He did his contemporary references because there's the multi-layer effect of, C- of Shakespeare where it's like, there's the kind of contemporary jokes that, um, that the groundlings are going to get. But I just, I love the idea that sort of, if, um, and maybe, maybe this podcast can do its bit towards doing that, um, that in de- centuries to come, um, literature scholars will look at the works of uh, Robert Harris because they look at every fucking hack from, like, 16th century because they're running out of potential PhD (laughs) theses. Um, so there is gonna be, like, in 2500 there's gonna be a PhD thesis on, um, on Robert Harris's Cicero trilogy, (laughs) and they're gonna be, there's gonna be at least a footnote where they mention, like, um, this is uh in this po- in this section he's actually referencing popular comedian of uh, Sasha Baron Cohen and his <laughs> character Borat, yeah. um, in his uh his his, willfully, his 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 humorously irreverent take on like on <laughs> Kurdistan or is it Kazakh Kazakhstani culture <laughs> and um and, and his lampooning of the American pretensions. Um, Everyone will nod. Mm. Oh. Um, it <laughs>
2: I was just imagining, like, future classrooms where they're making Robert Harris, who is the Shakespeare of this epoch, cool. I I say, (laughs) well, actually, there was some humour that you had recognised. One might say that Sasha Baron Cohen was Vorlag the Martian of his day. And
0: and maybe in 2600, we're going to have a popular crime writer, Thomas Harris, cyborg 89, uh, will feature a character who eats a painting of Ali G. Mm. And that's where this is going. But sorry, I'm, like, I just felt we needed to lower the yes. tone because you've been like, way too clever, the pair of you, throughout <laughs> the entire thing. And I want to talk about the theatre of Dionysius. Yes, <laughs> uh, yes, And so, well, I also want to bring it back to like serial killing and queerness, oh dear God. Um, so one of the things that I mentioned, which is like a fairly significant point, which we've kind of touched on already, which is the idea of the aestheticisation of serial killing. So, and this is this is a thing that actually goes back before the invention of the serial killer, which I'm going to just coin as a term. Maybe I'll write a book on it sometime. But but, um, the invention of the serial killer, there's um, there were a couple of key texts which um, which kind of which bring us in uh, to the aesthetic dimension. There was um, there was a notable book by Thomas de Quincey, who was one of the um, less well not lesser known romantics, but certainly lesser known than someone like Blake or Shelley. Uh, who wrote a book on uh, well, who wrote a, a short satirical treatise uh, about on murder considered as one of the fine arts where it's basically just saying like well, the reason we just dis- we see murder as a disgusting thing is because we're looking at it from the perspective of moral philosophy rather than aesthetic philosophy where we, you know where it has this thing, and so he brought up these questions and then Bataille uh, visited that years later in the uh, in the essay on the cruel practice of art, which uh, also predates the invention of the serial killer but um but flags up the important point that um art well just the, the really kind of fundamental point in that art is an abstraction from life and reality and so um and so kind of it's he actually brings up an interesting point about how um horror in art is um was was a predominant theme in art of horror and cruelty was a predominant theme in art when art was pretty much handmaiden to theology. Cause you know, we've got depictions of hell, which are, which are, you know, inarguably art, uh, even if we've not reached the point of the conception of the idea of fine art as, um, art for art's sake to use a kind of like, uh, slightly reductive term, but, um, how the capacity for horror transmuted into something pleasurable, um, is a thing and uh, but that's the thing actually i wanted to flag up which i've covered in kind of earlier writings which i'm probably going to return to is the idea that there's when art was in the service of religion um art was simultaneously a source of pleasure and a source of theological enlightenment but at the same time the pleasure was seen as a um gateway to theological enlightenment but at the same time the theological enlightenment was a gateway to pleasure and this is something that we see just as a common theme in art up in, right up until, like, you know, the swords and sandals epics of the 1930s. Something like um, there was a Cecil B. DeMille thing about, I think it was Cleopatra or possibly Nero, where there's an extreme it's there's an extremely horny film about the, um, the massacre of Christians under Nero, where there's like a lesbian dance scene and a woman is molested by an ape and this is what yeah i don't think i don't think i'm misreading that <laughs> <laughs> and um so this was seen as a kind of i'm just generally bringing this up because i think it's pertinent to what we're talking about um with the aestheticization of killing because that's where that's a key part of the mindset of the serial killer mentality and and how the transmuting of killing into art functions right up until the hannibal series and a sense from that point but um there was the the reason why these extremely explicit films were able to pass the censors was because they were you were able to write them off as um as 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 you know they got away with it because they were religious so it you know even if this was incredibly potent and nasty and lurid stuff Your enjoyment of it was good Because it was in the service of God Ultimately, and this was a positive thing And that's, you know, that's something you see throughout Religious art, the fact that, like, the Temptation of Antony, as an artistic tradition Which I've written about in the past um, Features, like, really, like, Cronenberg-esque, like, demonic Attacks, and uh, In the Italian tradition, a lot of seductions Of St. Antony by demons taking on the form of, of Naked women Which, they just seem to really Revel in depicting but okay so that's just my general spiel about this is the sphere we're operating in aesthetics and um aesthetics and murder and violence having a kind of symbiosis which serial killers and and the true crime world and uh true crime inspired fiction has just jumped upon um but Mm, i think uh... yeah
2: there's a couple of points I want to... Just, like, coming off of that, I want to say... One is, uh, the Bible gets hella horny in places. Oh, yeah. Fucking Song of Songs. <laughs> uh, Song, of so- oh, Song of Songs is proper, proper horny. Uh, I'll See, th- this
0: this series got horny in the end. Yeah, it's got, um, <laughs> There's A bit, there's, dick got Hannibal as fucking... There's an, uh, there's,
2: uh, there's an allusion to cunnilingus in the Song of Songs. It talks about drinking wine from your navel and stuff. It's nah. been read in certain ways. Um, there's, uh, Also, just, like, the, the stuff with, um... Uh, just how like the story about how john the baptist gets his head cut off is like very it's a weird erotic dimension to that because yeah because what happens in that story is what it says is um uh john the baptist gets uh locked up by king herod because herod had married his brother's widow and john the baptist had said that this is an act of incest because um according to customs of the time that was kind of not exactly on and uh he, uh, but he, but Herod doesn't want to have John executed because he's scared of him and his influence, and he believes that he does actually have like an air of the divine to him. But he gets convinced to have him to dec- uh, have him beheaded because his stepdaughter Salome does a very sexy dance for him, and, which is hor- and like, and it yeah. just. It's one of the one. It's one of the bits we just reading the Bible as literature is a very interesting thing. This is a very good. It's just done in a very very good way because it just says and dance pleased Herod and <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and yeah. It's um, and the other thing I wanted to state just, as well just like was, no, um, sorry. Just side like
0: note: um, there is a very very good and in depth description of this scene and an analysis of the artwork surrounding it in uh, the Joris Karl Huysman's um, novel Are Bors or *Against Nature*, which was a keystone of the
2: decadence movement but go on that novel is a, a stone of a shame around my neck because Lucy bought it for me um, I think it was the first Christmas I knew you or something like that and I only <laughs> I got like, ra- Sean, Sean I, I, think, I
0: think you might enjoy this and I only
2: to- got round to after I read another Wiesman's novel a different one I read <laughs> one of his Catholic novels I, got ra- I, like, I dug it out from my bookshelf uh, very recently and then lost it so,
0: yeah, you, you still won't read Maldorup. <laughs> 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 um, the that's point, the next... <laughs>
2: the thing I was going to say, the, I'm uh, gonna uh, sure. the thing I was going to say, tying it back to the eroticism of religious art yes, in this yes, podcast yes. about Hannibal Lecter, is um, Caravaggio as well. because queer, oh, yeah, Queering <laughs> this, because this is queer season, Caravaggio's religious art is... is uh, his painter his series of paintings of John the Baptist are just like... Um, like uh, just like an adolescent boy, he he like got to pose like semi-nude for him, which and, and there's actually in the future episode, I'm not going to say what gonna, is going to be the focus on, but in the future episode we're going to start talking about um, the culture of queerness of the early 20th century, queer art in the early
1: 20th century, I mean, I and the culture the pederasty, of pederasty. But, but uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but there is well, but there is um yeah, like that's even emphasised just as a side note again, the the, the I always think the depiction of. Caravaggio by Derek Jarman in that sense is totally—it's—it couldn't be any more homoerotic. He, yeah,
2: think, Car- it's amazing. Car- Caravaggio was a queer was was a queer artist, and his—and again, like it has to have the caveat of this being pederastic, but there is the the uh, the element of queerness in his religious art, in his depictions of religious figures. Uh, I've, <laughs> I have two anecdotes which I'm going to insist on in sharing. That one is uh, at a Catholic wedding I went to. Uh, in America, I I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who was um, I think a trained on priest now actually, and uh, we're just having a like meandering conversation about art. And he said Caravaggio was his favourite artist. So I was feeling a bit combative, and I just decided to ruin his day by saying, "Yeah, you know he was gay, right?" Because um, because they they're proper Catholics with proper opinions about these things, and it was something. Sadistically beautiful About how his face fell When I explained to him Sort of the obvious <laughs> Homoroticism Of his Baroque religious the, upper, um, the You other thing- thought it was God But <laughs> 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 For God But no, it, it was It was, it was, bumming. It was bumming all, all along <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
2: The other thing I want to say Was meant, uh, Years ago I went uh, my, I went on a trip To uh, Russia With my, uh, with my college Because uh, uh, I took A module in history in, in modern history And we did a thing On Russian history <laughs> And we were being shown around <laughs> We were being shown around um the um the oh what the hell is it called the big fe- the winter palace art museum that's a famous name and i forget what her name is but there um we came up to a caravaggio's a picture of figures of uh, the master of saint anthony um which oh, no it's not saint anthony it's um saint sebastian, sebastian thank you yeah. saint sebastian and our tour guide who was a wonderful laconic russian woman just said uh, many people, they say that uh, Caravaggio's art is very gay because uh, the the boys, they all look like women. But they are not. And just, like, carried on. <laughs> but she said this completely unprompted as well. Just I just want to make it clear there's nothing gay about this, fellas. <laughs> oh I just
0: protest too much. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so, I think, like... I think that's probably, if we're, if we yeah, have, yeah, sorry, yeah, mi- getting, you have to be near the microphone. Yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah, if we're getting into, like, the real kind of, like, homoeroticism and tying serial killing back to, um, homosexuality and Queerness. so we talked about, um, so this, this idea of a and the turning cruelty and barbarity and sin in its kind of subjective capacity into art more generally. Um, this is actually something we covered briefly in the last episode, because we because we had so much to talk about in that as well. Um, the idea that, well, just is going back to kind of ground zero of queer theory. The idea of the decadence among whomst was, um, whomst, was Yaris Carl Oismans. One of the things about that is, like, homosexuality... Uh, we, we mentioned that, like, basically, it only existed as an act, and we talked about the invention of the homosexual, which, so, you know, culminating in. Weespin, co-
2: when Whistman was writing, the shift was starting to happen, though. Towards the, um, there was a guy called. Um, I'm just going to double check his name actually, because basically at work we had a thing for. Um, uh, hold on. Edit out the uh, gap here. Uh, What was his name? Uh, Was it Carl Ulvix? I think it was Carl. Uh, Yeah, Carl Carl, Holland. Okay. Yeah, basically, um, uh, at work, we did a load of things about. We did the thing for uh, Pride and uh, some of us pushed for actually doing a proper thing for Pride. And we had like a a week of uh, talks from uh, members of staff who identify as LGBT about things about things about LGBT history. And I presented about um, the evolution of this. And there was a guy came across I've never heard of before this called Karl Heinrich Ulrichs, who was arguably the first recognisable gay activist in 19th century Germany. And who just like wrote a load of pamphlets about, hey, there's this thing that's actually always existed where some fellas wanna get it on with the other fellas and some ladies wanna get it on with the ladies and some wanna get it on with both. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this was like arguably the first attempt at a systematization of uh, queer desire from a positive perspective. Because mm. before he wrote this, there were various pathological accounts mm. of um Sodomistic desires, but yeah. he um, developed a a positive account of it and the positive vocabulary of it. Which he even tried to ground, like he even tried to um, ground within like uh, German Christian beliefs as well. Like he he really wanted, like this was like the first attempt at something recognizable, attempt to at something like that in modernity, and it comes alongside the development of the concept of uh, the homosexual or um, uh, the homosexual man, and homosexual woman as a distinct form of person is an attempt at liber- at, at uh, attempt of at seizing that as something liberatory by saying that actually that we've always existed mm-hmm. and it's always been something part of who we're born as um yes yeah, so i think that complicates the the Foucauldian picture somewhat oh, that, yeah. um that oh we were free before we developed the concept of the person yeah there's, who is a, the lot to, there's but... a lot there's a lot to challenge about Foucault. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes. i think kind of like that's that's kind of interesting because like i mentioned well I will get back to kind of aestheticization in a minute, but yeah, you know, we we already covered that—the idea that like homosexuality didn't exist, and then it was able to exist in negative because it was able to exist through the dimension of aesthetics, as de- established by the um, by the uh, decadent movement. And I'm putting my hand up and saying like, yes, that's an extremely Eurocentric way of th- saying it, <laughs> but this is. Unfortunately, so far, a Eurocentric podcast, but, um, but this Ooh, was... That, uh, we, we did one film from Japan. Yes, we did. That uh, I mean, that
2: counts for something, damn it. Was it.
0: We just talked about, like, European eroto-fascism oh, well, we did the whole ju- time. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway...
2: We're taking the podcast about European eroto-fascism I'm and nothing I'm wondering whether, else.
0: like... Because we've talked about ourselves as being, like, a Marxist podcast, but I really think that predominantly we are in a rotto fascist podcast but
2: uh, (laughs) we're historians of rotto fascism yes oh let's just change the tagline to that like (laughs) okay
0: but basically the thing is like so there were two currents intellectual currents in europe um roughly not roughly around the same time but you know one following shortly after the other which was the uh, translation you know the the creation of queer culture through the creation of a queer space in a kind of heterotopia that was uh, that was formalized by the decadence, but at the same time this was when um Freud was starting to write about homosexuality and published his paper on narcissism, uh, which kind of was very pathologizing in its outlook but um but ultimately hit upon a lot of real things that we're going to be talking about a great deal in a forthcoming episode which i don't want to tip my hat to too heavily but um But one of the things I think is very important to kind of ground when we're talking about serial killing and homosexuality is the idea that, um, well, just going back to like the idea that there's a critical crossover, even if there's not a literal crossover, which is the idea that what we're seeing, the pattern we're seeing is that we've got what is essentially narrowed down to a physiological or psychological difference which is the difference between heterosexuality and homosexuality um, or bisexuality and the difference between um, normative uh, human empathy and sociopathy. And it's like, it's a very small kind of like a small um, physiological thing that can be reduced to a footnote of biology, but... Well, no, actually a pretty major part of biology. But <laughs> um, but the the, the the crossover there is the extrapolation between, um, well, is, is the fact that in both cases it's a physiological thing, which is, uh, can be transcended or adapted into some great, uh, abstract transcendental thing. And I suppose that's the same way about kind of eroticism. Eroticism is just getting your rocks off, but the greatest works of art, some, many of the greatest works of art and literature and sculpture and, and things were done in the service of love. Um, as a, as just, you know, the transmuting of a, um, of a human instinct into a divine human thing and i think that is like, that, that cannot, is the yeah that is the that is the fundamental aspect of the aestheticization of serial killer i
2: mean there are other readings of it that, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. but that's just me shoving my religious agenda into things mm. that uh, that um the um erotic that and part of our erotic desires is the desire for uh, for the divine mm. um yeah I'm not going anywhere with that oh, just yeah. not, i just wanted to say some words but
0: I guess like this is the thing that I would bring back to Nietzsche Um, so there is a quote by Thomas Mann which I actually haven't read I haven't been able to find a good translation of the essay where he says this but he does a retroactive queering of Nietzsche uh, where he describes in one breath um, uh, he describes Oscar Wilde and Nietzsche as rebels in the name of beauty uh, I think I even mentioned that in the last episode um, of like Lovecraft and Nietzsche as uh, rebels in the name of horror and it's an analogous thing and again that could be another sort of simul- um another mirroring of this relationship but but it's very interesting that you know Nietzsche, ca- Nietzsche can be brought into a very queer context through that and um, but I think yeah um, but I think kind of one of the things I wanted to bring in well you had some points about um The aesthetics as ethics and Sardian ethics. I want. I think this might be a good point to bring that in.
1: Yeah. Um, For this, I actually wanted to read a passage from this book that I mentioned earlier, called Masso Criticism, by Paul Mann, and it's the way that he specifically describes an avant-garde art movement, really generally, Um, which I think will speak to a lot of what we talked about. And basically, he defines this period of avant-garde as between, um, he basically situates situates it between two Parisian revolutions, between 1871 and 1968. And he says, for 100 years, the avant-garde was essential to a culture that defined itself by a certain dialectic of mainstream and margin, tradition and innovation, convention and experiment, status quo and revolution. The avant-garde, as Clement Greenberg claimed, kept culture moving. It was the leading edge of our progress and a challenge to every form of cultural stagnation. But sometime in the 1960s, let us say, there was a sudden proliferation of claims that the avant-garde had died. These obituaries were more far-reaching than the typical claims that one movement had had succeeded in another. They were claims about the passing of an entire cultural dialectic, a system of oppositions that had seemed to be the very ground of culture for 100 years. They were claims that the avant-garde as such had died. Now, autopsies of the putative corpse of the avant-garde usually reveal a predictable etiology. In general, it seems the avant-garde died because it was unable to sustain its alterity, its difference, its otherness. It produced too many signs of the same and hence exhausted its credibility. The avant-garde died because all major forms of anti-art or aesthetic resistance ended up in the very museums and cultural institutions that they began by calling into question. Because the avant-garde insistence on innovation reduced itself to the more trivial market for novelties, because its attack on tradition became tradition, because its attacks on the culture of the commodity only produced more cultural commodities, because it could not at one and the same time oppose mainstream culture and serve as its research and development, and development agency, because anti-art succeeded despite itself in becoming art, because in short, the avant-garde continually turned itself into everything it denounced. Fashion, commodities, high art, museum culture, Western civilization, bourgeois self-indulgence, and academic commentary. And the way that I sort of read, and I mean, this whole the whole book that Paul Mann writes is sort of dedicated to that depth, that, not depth, but depth and how to respond to it. And I think that this is something that becomes really apparent in the way that Hannibal is represented as this sort of high culture um, person who at the one time he, he occupies that same dialectic of being a, a member of high society of certain um, authority of what is good and what is beautiful. And at the same time, is kind of challenging those boundaries. And there's a sense that I think is an ethical approach. Um, and Paul Mann the, 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 this book is quite expensive (laughs) and every time I try and find it it always is missing this final essay. The first time I read it it was out of a a university library and I read it in full but there's always this last essay missing where he coins an anethics um, as one word and he sort of says there's there's an ethical approach to ethics in itself that resists ethics as a a sort of school of philosophy or thought and resists its own Consolidation into uh, a status quo or uh, certain boundaries for where thinking should contain itself to. And it kind of brings in this queerness in the sense, because this is what I really like about a lot of ethics of, I was going to say, queerality or queerness as, as it's broadly understood. And Foucault kind of comes into this in a way because there's this, I was reading this, um, it was a Book. That, it was an essay. Uh, sorry, an interview with Foucault that was turned into a book, and it was called "Friendship as a Way of Life." And Foucault is obviously he's sort of renowned as um, as someone who tried to form aesthetics into an ethics of, uh, of the the living a good or beautiful life was an ethics in itself. But when you have this turn where where is sort of developing that thought withinst his own uh, withinst within <laughs> hoops, <was this>? hoops, <laughs> yeah. within his own sort of self-discovery in a sense so after this point that Mann's referring to was the 1968 of the referring to May 68 in France as being this, 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 where this moment died but there's this, uh, there's this, there's this um, story that Foucault went to Death Valley in California, took LSD and had this huge sort of uh, hallucinatory epiphany about his sister and about his family and he said something like, you know, whilst he was in this desert of like, you know, I've I've had this realisation, I must go home. Uh, in the sense that he sort of realized in going to this extremity of landscape and of self, that he could go he could now go back and and rethink and recalibrate his understanding of his family. And so in this in this interview, um, Fuca kind of doubles down on this as an ethical approach. The Queen in itself is a solidarity without similarity, where it, it's, uh, it's it's a it's it's any sort of movement that is based on that as a sort of identitarian grounding depends on uh, a sense of friendship that is far more um, uh, not widespread but it, com- it encompasses far more than the traditional, be heteronormative relation, and I think that's only becoming more apparent today, where you know we have crises of masculinity that depend on these very fixed notions of who we are as people or, or specifically as men um uh as uh, as masculinity being something that's so uh detrimentally self-conceived as a, as a rigid structure but the the queerness of friendship as a, as a way of life kind of undermines that and necessitates that you make friends with people that have very different ways of life to you and queerness in itself being understood as like a uh, I think he, the way that he describes it, Foucault describes it as being a, it's it's always so it has that same avant-garde relation. So it's an it's an avant-garde way of being that is always between mainstream and margin, uh, tradition and innovation, uh, and it's a way of relating to each other that um, that knowingly and explicitly um, traverses that line. That is the ethical orientation. And in a way, that's something that we see in a lot of representations of Hannibal Lecter in the sense that he, whether in the book as a friend with Will Graham, behind this sort of prison structure, or in the TV series where that's even more explicit, where he's sort of, uh, he, his, uh, this, 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 the homoerotic dimension of him recognising other, not only queer figures, but also serial killers in his midst, is a sense of him striking up a friendship that is by any normative means, not a friendship. It's something that completely uh, uh, explodes our definition. And so it's this sense that in a way, that what I find really fascinating about Hannibal as a character in that sense, going on from what you're saying about this decadent movement, is that he sort of seems to bathe his ethics on that sense of high culture. And that anyone doesn't comport to that in a way is, or or especially in a sense of politeness, if someone is rude, he will, he will kill the rude. You should always or, eat
0: the rude. Yeah. <laughs> Free-range rude.
1: Or even there's yeah. that episode in Hannibal, right, where he goes to, that uh, he's in a, he's in the, the audience for a performance mm. and he kills the cellist or, or some, or I can't remember some sort of inst- whoever, the musician think... on stage does a bad job, so it's his, it becomes his sort of responsibility to kill that person rid them from the social circle. But that's but that in itself is the grounding for how he makes that friendship with this other queer serial killer. Yeah, there's a there's a
2: wonderful moment, and this I remember this was pointed out to uh, me by um, uh, by a friend of mine that in the first episodes of Hannibal when you when we first meet Hannibal he's in, when he's in therapy with a patient and this patient just leaves his like snotty tissue on the table and there's just a look Mons McElsaid gives him and to quote my friend he said that Hannibal's definitely going to kill him and it's definitely mostly going to be because of that <laughs> yeah 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 um, but absolutely yeah and there's even a joke about it in the um, in the film uh of red dragon the film red dragon not manhunter yeah uh, was about, that like uh, the 2001 or whatever it yeah was. Where, where where sort of like he where he kills the uh the Oberist or something like that and they're talking about and he's disappeared in mysterious circumstances and all his dinner guests are saying all the same it's probably better for the orchestra that yes. he's not here <laughs> yeah, yeah. um yes it's uh it also feels like following following that which was um Fascinating and excellent and good. I also kinda of feel this is the best place to say fuck for turfs, king kept pride.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Like, yeah, Yeah, because it's like it's just anxiety would... about wanting to give the man though. Like
2: Yeah, why the hell would we um want a queer in this which wasn't radically open to any form of um uh, beautiful creative love.
0: Mm. Yeah. In whatever capacity it manifests itself. Whatever capacity it manifests itself I...
2: among people who want the same thing. So yeah.
0: I would also say Again, like, that was fucking brilliant. It's like, (laughs) kind of, um, I can't really form a response to that because that was just very, very nicely. He's a a keeper, isn't he? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that I would raise is um, this just goes to underscore something that's very prevalent in in serial killing and true crime culture, um, this idea of uh, eliminating high society, because one of the things that comes up a lot in serial killer discourse is the idea of the less dead, Mm. Um, That a lot of serial killers victims are very often um, sex workers or um, people or or kind of non-white people or people who are otherwise seen as uh, kind of outside in some capacity. So uh, straight culture, which happens to be the kind of decider of who, who whose murder gets investigated. And again, this actually manifests very recently. There was a serial killer prominent in the Toronto gay scene who just got away with shit for absolutely ages because no one wanted to talk about it and it happened, there was actually It happened arti- in London yeah. yeah It happened in, in London, London, London I mean, there were articles, killer so, Yeah, yeah There that, were articles about this guy before there was a criminal investigation and long before any actual stuff came out it was Yeah like, like the fucking yeah. like
2: this guy like even reported two of the killings himself saying that, oh, there's uh, a dead body in this graveyard just walked past. He'd like, in identical circumstances, and the fucking cops just said, well, if, you know, that's a perfecto for you. He's going to OD in the graveyard, isn't he? Ah, oh, jeez. Fuck the cops. No cops at Pride.
0: Yeah, yeah. fuck him. Um, there was also a point, oh, shit, I've just completely flown, but... um, Just... Well, actually, no, going back to... You know, we made that analogy between kind of like the Holocaust and the AIDS crisis decades later. Again, um, the AIDS crisis got as bad as it did because heteroculture didn't acknowledge uh didn't acknowledge the the, the yeah. number of deaths happening in gay culture but at the same time there's an even darker thing to this which doesn't even really get talked about even to this day even in like LGBT scenes and the fact that before AIDS were homo- you know uh AIDS and HIV was associated with uh queer culture it was a huge thing among addict like heroin addicts and uh, and homeless people and we just you know that's a forgotten chapter of that because it's Rightfully become an important part of LGBT history, but it's uh, somehow managed to be left out of economic history. Mm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and that's just. So again, we entered into queer season, saying like, "Woo, let's get gay up in here," and we're talking about really, really dark shit. And this I also, goes I, also to f-
2: that- I do also feel a powerful need here to say that I know, I know there are different readings of it, but the instincts in Nietzsche that lead him to be contemptuous of. Working class, ordinary people, fuck him for those things. Like, bearing bearing in mind all the brilliance that does come from him, fuck him for those things. Yeah, I'm going to pluck at Zarathustra's laurels in that <laughs> regard. <laughs> yeah, fucking <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> chin chin, we've run out of wine, but like... Yeah, empty yeah. glass, Jin-chin. clink. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Um, Um, I'm gonna... I feel the need to acknowledge we've passed the two-hour mark.
0: I'm gonna go do that, and then I want to launch into the theatre, I imagine. Oh my god, we're still going. Just keep rolling, I want to hear what the fuck you guys talk about while I'm out
2: of (laughs) (laughs) the Ah, bloody hell. Thanks for being here. No, it's alright, it's been great. We do have fun, don't we? Yes. Um, yeah. I'm exhausted now, it's great. I love this shit. We have so much... (laughs) We have, um it uh, it was um i 'm so 'm so glad this because like Lucy and I go back years and years and years but um i 've said this to her before that uh, one of the things i 'm really grateful for is that we have this project now as a thing that 's just going to keep on going is like this just new dimension to our friendship. Sort of like now now yeah, we yeah. 're work buddies in a sense that we have this other thing that we 've got going on it 's um it's really cool to have that, uh, and it's really cool to have you on. You're, um, you're, you're, you're really cool. So fist bump, buddy! Fist
1: bump, <laughs> fist bump for sure.
2: Oh, God, we've had a lot of wine.
1: I know it's good though; it keeps the conversation flowing.
2: It Really does, because um, we were debating beforehand what booze to have. Because um, one should have a podcast sober, as we discovered. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and definitely beer is beer is depressive and wine is revivifying. Mm. It actually reminds me of all things, there's something that Mark Fisher wrote somewhere and he's talking about the fall and how there's something kind of sludgy and, and hedonic almost, about their music because it is all like pies, mash, and beer. And I suppose the things that slow you down, while well, really should be like voddy and pills, <laughs> yeah. as, as, as the thing, as like the as the um, the vi- the vitalistic things that propel you forwards. So I
1: think like wine is is so good for that. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, but, yeah. Well, it's like a, it comes into some sort of. Um, I always when when I think about Mark and the Fall. It's this sense that it, it comes back to what we were talking about really early on of um, the the way that culture is kind of like an Ouroboros of that that its products always inform its community and this community informs its products and whatever else and then the sense that what you consume in a in, a, in a, almost in a Nietzschean materi- materialistic sense of what you you are what you eat mm. um, that that word but 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 from that in a way you can you can get a psychedelia from pie and mashed beer just as you can get a psychedelia from wine and strawberries and berries you can you can you can have some sort of
0: uh we had berries Oh, we're approaching berry critical berry. Yeah,
2: I've had most of them because they've just been within my reach <laughs> for the whole thing, and I'm really thinking now about how much fibre I've consumed. <laughs> I, um, I think
1: everyone I've eaten has been subsumed in wine for about half an hour. So every mm-hmm. time he eats one, it's like, it's not sustenance; it's just uh-huh. it's just glorifies. We again are best Men's on this podcast. Af- yeah, af- sure.
2: Afterwards, we're not sure what we're going to get. Takeout and like watch a movie, and then uh, you're welcome to hang out. Sure. I don't have to go back because um, I can catch any train back to Brighton so it's fine great mm. okay. so very good. oh Lord,
0: I'm feeling lazy now okay. um, <laughs> no we've got to finish the episode um, so um, I guess this is a jumping off point well actually I'll just briefly bring it sorry <laughs> I'll just briefly bring it back to Nietzsche because um, I talked about that point about aestheticisation and the retroactive um, the retroactive queering of Nietzsche on Thomas Mann's part I mean I think we've, like, I don't actually know what that was motivated by because as I said I couldn't find a good translation of, like, a translation of the essay that was readily available. It was only ever in kind of secondhand sources that I found that quote, but I think it's probably something that's arisen from what we've already been talking about. But, um, I guess, uh, yeah, so, well, I think it's just like, if we're connecting this to conceptions of 19th century queerness, either through the decadent culture, or through Freud, because Freud was kind of like, in his own way, he treated his uh, psychotherapy as a branch of archaeology, which mm. is a thing okay, that's yeah. w- well worth bringing up in the context of Freud, in that the reason we call it the Oedipus com- te- complex is because he saw his uh, analysis of the Sophoclesian drama of Oedipus as being an act of archaeology to the... Yeah. He get was a classics the- nerd. Yeah, he was a classics nerd. He was getting back into the mind of... Um, of the ancient greeks and also just side note um one should go to the freud museum it's in north london it's about eight quid to get in but it's well worth it and there's a very very attractive man who runs the till there and, and a very <laughs>
2: attractive man wasn't i'm he? sure
0: he's still there because it's like it's perfect that he's there a kind of like he was like a, wasn't he also like, like a thelemite like he was Something just, like that, yeah. He was just
2: a very striking
0: European man. Yeah, with a shaven head and a turtleneck. And it's like, who... <laughs> That's straight from fucking central casting. Hello,
1: welcome to the Ford Museum. Yeah. <laughs> Enter Eros.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> we should yes. say anything more in case he becomes, like, readily identifiable and be full prey of
0: GDPR. <laughs> oh, jeez, yeah. <laughs> okay, oh, God, yeah. Uh, don't I'm just miss... just gonna <laughs> fucking... Let's not cut that. But... Um, <laughs> We had a lovely oh. outing there, didn't we? I've got that so picture of you. three years ago to the day... De- not to the day, like... <laughs> to about the ye- three years ago. Let's go back. Let's go back right... No, no, Let's
2: write this to- minute. Let's stop the okay. podcast. Let's break into Sigmund Freud's house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just study his
0: bookshelf because he's got, like... He's got the works of Edgar Allan Poe there on the shelf, which I think is really cool. And yeah. it's surrounded by, like... It's surrounded by like Greek, Egyptian, and Mycenaean and, and Babylonian like trinkets he collected. Yeah,
2: his yeah. desk was just covered in he, he, statues from he, pillaged Egypt. He was
0: on. <laughs> oh god, this goes back into kind of like what I was talking about with the self fucking mythologization of Freud—the fact that he was like. Whenever I work, I am under the under the eyes of the gods. Yeah, um,
1: <laughs> I always have. I always I, he always ends up coming up because I I love Freud a lot. Again, like as oh, yeah, we all love Freud. Well, yeah, but even yeah. like in this almost like, like a, a, no, no, sure. <laughs> but, but in the same way of like Nietzsche, in a sense that reading reading his stuff, especially reading it out loud, it's really readable and it's really it's like they're works of literature. But I have a, my six degrees second episodes. There, six degrees of, second, actually, there, six to re- degrees of separation. My girlfriend's brother's girlfriend, is, uh, she's currently doing a Neuroscience degree at King's. And every time we end up talking about psychology, I always end up bringing up Freud. And she's like, no, he's cancelled. Get him out of here. <laughs> yeah. Because he's like, he's, he just has no relevance for what she's doing. And she's like, he's, he's just, he's a has-been. He's, t- he's, a, he's a weird, oh. antiquated person. But I'm like, well, okay, but that's, that's true. I can see that being true from where you are. But Freud's a philosopher. In today, in the like 21st yeah. century, he has to be considered a philosopher more and than
0: anything else. I he got a was point about um, the redemption of Freud coming up in my sections on Buffalo Bill, which I think we'll was get also more. So he but was we've more. Got uh... we've got forever. it <laughs> got. I've got like 32 gigs on that fucking. He,
2: he was. He was more like self-aware of the limitations of his theoretical work than people like make him out to be. Like he does explicitly state that sort of like he is kind of just so sort of like trying to create like a way of talking about these things more than he's making claims about. Oh, actually, this is like the empirically observable structure of the mind. This being said though he was a materialist, he did kind of think that eventually he would find the part of the brain that corresponds with, um... Uh, that's S, and Ooh. so on. I'm insisting on saying that because I'm going to be a bit of a
1: wanker about it.
0: I uh, think I think our wanker credentials have been well established over the last year and a half, you know?
1: <laughs> There's something quite Freudian about that as well, isn't <laughs> it? really? The masculine nature of a podcast. Uh, <laughs>
2: but Yeah, but the thing as well, like, with Freud, like, one of the things that's interesting about Freud is that he is, like, the great, um... He's presented as like the great excavator of sexuality, but he does so within the context of an extremely normative And extremely um, pathologizing. Yes about Yeah, and, so that, um, that, yeah um, I'm coming I mean, back to that,
0: don't worry. Um, don't worry, dear listener. <laughs>
2: it reminds me actually oh God, many years when I was really into Robert Anton Wilson, I remember reading, I think it's one of the cosmic trigger books. and um, something along the lines of um, like the revel- like the discoveries Freud makes about um, the uh, erotic desires of children and stuff like something well known to women because women were caregivers who actually spent time with children unlike men up until mm. you know, sort of extremely recently So, sort of like they were like oh yeah of course like um, um, children like are aware that their bodies have pleasure potentials. Like, this isn't some... This isn't, like, a groundbreaking discovery. This was just... This is an example of um, the genderedness of knowledge, if anything else.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, so, I think, like, we've got... I've, we've well established the link between aestheticisation and serial killing. Um, and I think just, like, the jumping-off point is, like, yes. Yeah, so, as we mentioned, Nietzsche was pretty into the classics. And um, in the context of this, I think... And this is a point I want to kind of, like, um, explore and just give a brief kind of rundown. Actually, no, let's just do the brief rundown of the fact that, like, so the Hannibal Universe, as we mentioned, it's sort of, it is the actualization of the serial killer mindset. It it essentially operates in the universe that serial killers operate in, even if there are these, like, kind of... Um, normative human agents um, trying to bring them back into their perceived reality. Um, one of the things that El Sandifer actually mentions in... We've been talking about El a lot. This is kind of like her breakdown of why she thinks Mencius Moldbug is a douchebag. Um, but... Her, it's not like, has to do, really. Yeah, <laughs> really I mean, her kind of... Bit. Her, like... It's just kind of like her, her, her... It's just a digression about, like, giving a critical background to how Mencius Moldbug's worldview manifested. But in on in and of that section of the essay near reaction of basilisk she does just give a fantastic essay on the hannibal series uh but one of the one of the key things she mentions about that she also actually like one of the key things i highlighted the fact that she mentions that the erotic element of um of the of the hannibal series is sublimated but it's like it's really emphasized through that sublimation i, I you mm. know she does i think she does acknowledge that as well but you know yeah, that's, but, that's there's a, up,
2: but yeah yeah there's a moment where they're eating um Oh, what's the name of the bird? The illegal, the forbidden bird. Um, Orcelon? Orcelon. I'm just googling it. Uh, illegal French bird meat.
0: <laughs> uh, Orcelon!
2: There we go. Thanks, Google. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. <this. laughs> also, fuck you, Google. Give us that data back. <laughs> Uh, I'm becoming, like, I sort of think about, like, when I identified as proper full-on, um, like, left techno accelerationist. I'm so just really aware of the fact that I'm slipping into, like, full-on, like, qualified ludditism of, like, like, technophobia and horror and big data. <laughs> so, kind of, like, I want the things that mean that people can live for ages, but I just don't want any other things that go along with it. Anyway. We forgot to
0: make... That's a whole tangent. Fucking... That's
2: a whole tangent. Yeah, there's a bit where he... where
0: capitalism and
2: there's a bit where I'm also aware that that clap is going to be really painful of the listeners <laughs> but there's a bit um, there's the one like because um, one thing that I think we does like should be explicitly stated because it's so obvious we run risk of forgetting it in the series is that there's so much erotic tension between Hannibal and Will Graham mm. so much of it's it's so there that and there's like I remember the bit that kind of for me, was the closest they get to just getting down to fuck right is just when they're eating uh, aut- uh, autolum, um, which, is a, um, which is a, which is kind of like, what is it? It's a kind of finch, which um, it's no longer legal to hunt them, but the way that it used to be done, how they do it in the show, is that you take this tiny little bird, you'd, you would fatten it up by locking it in a box filled with wheat, so it would just gorge itself on it or whatever. Then you would drown it in cognac, Roast it, pluck it, roast it whole, and then eat it whole, like bones and all. Because like the way, that the bones cut your mouth and make it bleed, adds to the flavour. And the way that you would do this is you'd put an, a napkin over your head to hide your shame from God as you did this dreadful thing. And there's a bit, and when Hannibal that scene, yeah, Hannibal prepares this for him and Will Graham, and there's a ver uh, as a meal. And, like, and there's this very slow shot of them both putting like, them into their mouths at the same time. And Hannibal explains like the, the lore around this with a napkin.
3: Traditionally, during this meal, we are to place shrouds over our heads. Hiding our faces from God. I don't hide from God. Bones and all, bones and
2: all, and they just slowly both put them into mouths together and thinking this. And uh, again, I'm just going to quote my buddy Max who introduced me to this wonderful show. Said it somehow would be less gay if they did fuck. Like if they just if it would it would somehow ruin it because it is just through this. Um, almost as if the actual sex act would somehow lessen the eroticism of it almost because it is just it is almost a kind of a black divinity to it like there is this kind of satanic divinity to it that um like going from what you were saying about how eroticism at its base is just wants to, want to get your rocks off um which it isn't but uh, <laughs> yeah. how it becomes elevated by art into the first for, for the divine and how the show does it is just by making sexuality and eroticism this pure asceticization, but an asceticization which is bleak, cruel, murderous somehow. Can we can we also just like highlight about? So we talked about the
0: um, the significantly Europeanness of the Hannibal character. Can we talk about the the significantly Frenchness of the Hannibal character? Because even though he's mm. not from France, that's when he first started studying medicine. And it seems if we just look back at the timeline we've been okay. oh no, a
2: curtain to is bellowing listeners do not be alarmed yeah Sorry, I, um, I was seeing I had a vision of
0: <laughs> on the recording just like okay. well I think it's like possibly to do with the kind of the power, but also the kind of military setbacks that France has experienced as a country. I'm just going to throw that out there. But <laughs> um, you do yeah, I mean, you talked about in the in the Nosferatu episode the fact that like French culture became so much more interesting when they lost the Prussian War. Well, but, uh, that, mean, was Nietzsche's, uh, yeah. that was Nietzsche's remark. Okay, so but like, of the items, if we're just yeah. tracing our critical timeline here, we've talked about Bataille. We've talked about the Marquis de Sade. Uh, we've talked. T- I think, kind of. Extrapolation we've probably talked a bit about Guy Dere the first you know history's first great serial killer yes that Bataille mm. loved yes mm. and did a fantastic documentary on him or documentary book, book yes. documentary document um, yes. and <laughs> yeah, and we've talked about um I haven't talked about Maldoral, but Maldorol was the fucking sublimation of this because that was the great treatise on the no- notion of radical evil and uh, which Bataille mentions in a footnote because it's just like it's so in 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 literature and evil because it's like as literature, it's so evil. It's not worth talking about because it's so fucking obvious that it's evil. <laughs> and 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 just like what did it? What is it? Uh, and and you know, just watch the film The Devils as well. And fucking Cardinal Richelieu and uh, Louis the Fourteenth, who was the Sun King, and of course there's the Batai connection there. The gulp of sun, the uh Gisouvet, the fucking solar anus. What the... France what gives why why are you so good at nastiness um, like no the, the, it's the revolutions right it's that it's that
1: avant gardeness I think uh, the
0: revolutions is just a manifestation of something exactly <laughs> exactly
1: but it's that like uh, so I always think of it there's that sense now that the that the French revolution has understood that it was this uh you know this riotous time that led to a dictatorship essentially being established in France um that as much as it was in the it paid lip service to the emancipation of proletarian struggle
3: the it, it, looking back on it
1: now it just it becomes blatantly obvious that that revolution happened so that the bourgeoisie could continue and perpetuate mm. itself and so what we're I'm saying to say
0: Jonathan Mead's come on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> so what we're saying
2: here is that the french have always mm. been mucky
1: I'm, 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 but, this <laughs> but, that,
0: but that's that, good, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: but it's, is it French or is it more broadly European, though? No, it's, it's French. Like, okay, because <laughs> yeah. this, this, this is this taps into something that I've written, I've been writing about at the moment in my forthcoming book Egress on Repeater Books, early twenty twenty. But the fact that the that, that, that Hannibal is a, is a European in America, and so there's this sense that of, of a Europeanness for sure, or more specifically a Frenchness. But I have a, I get a bit of a hard on for American history in a weird way. And I love this sense that the there used to be the, the the initial theory for how America developed as a country was the it's called the the turn the the Turner was it called the Turner thesis or the frontier thesis? Yeah. But it was this suggestion by some historian in the early twentieth century or late nineteenth. And he says that basically uh, and this has been widely denounced since but he had this theory that America developed from East to West, and that um, America essentially was an escape from Europe. But most of its Federalists, like Alexander Hamilton, whoever else, their main concern was to recode Europe in America. Um, mm-hmm. And I almost feel like, I guess, again, going back to the, these questions that we sort of opened up with, of, of, of how um, we can think about ourselves and our understanding of ourselves in the aftermath of these great atrocities, But America kind of in recoding Europe has to deal with that explicitly. And if it's going to recode Europe in its on its own, this new world, it 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 kind of uh it would always emphasize the people that were leading this charge would emphasize the 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 benefits of Europe and European thinking, um, whilst ignoring all the terrors that it produced and would produce later on far Mm. more explicitly with the world wars and stuff. Um but there's this sense that in ignoring um, these more horrific sides to it, that that became later emerged more explicitly in his literature. Uh, and so Bataille, that links to Bataille with his literature and evil stuff for sure. But there's also my, one of my, my, my favorite literary critic is a guy called Leslie Fiedler, who was write, would write extensively about American culture explicitly as an American. Um, and he would emphasize, he, he, he basically made his name brilliantly, I think, because he wrote an essay about Huckleberry Finn and in this essay he basically emphasises the fact that the relationship between the two central characters is explicitly homoerotic. And that would cause this outcry of like, how can you denigrate our cultural figures by saying they're gay or that there's some sort of tension there but actually over years that the decades that progressed he was a bit um, vindicated and sort of said well of, of course there's the homoeroticism because it's this uh, he sort of describes this sense of a higher masculine sentimentality within American culture that um, uh, this tension that is explicitly masculine in the sense that uh, in terms of its relationship to women both, uh, European descendant or native. Um, but there's this sense that, uh, masculinity, American masculinity has always been in flux because of this initial recoding. That's never quite been sutures nicely.
2: It, it reminds me somewhat of, um, William Buckley, the arch, cons- the arch American conservative, he's considered the, uh, the father of modern American conservatism. Uh, his greatest contribution to it being like getting like actively trying to purge anti-Semitism from it was also being an anti-Semite. Um, uh, but there's a wonderful documentary about his relationship with um, uh, Gore Vidal, Best of Enemies, um, which talks about the famous um, debates they had around the, um, I think it was Nixon's first run for president. And uh, there's something, one of the things they acknowledge, and it's very obvious if you watch Interviews with him more programs with Berkeley because like Barclay was presented himself as like uh, he was he was a devout Roman Catholic he was um, a traditionalist Catholic and he and he presented himself as like being part of the bastion of morality against the against queerness essentially that's one of the things he had about Gore Vidal Gore Vidal being openly uh, queer. But the thing about Buckley If you watch interviews with him He's a very effeminate guy mm-hmm. it, And because he, he's very Again Very cultured Very cultivated He has the transatlantic accent Which is just inherently Faintly queer Because of its Connotations with Specifically of Britishness Which again has a certain An upper class Britishness Has a certain queer n- Element or energy to it from an American perspective, I think, or the American conservative cultural
3: perspective. As I'm the of only sort of pro or crypto-Nazi yeah. I can think of is yourself. Yeah. Failing that, let's, I will let's, only let's say that if we can't it. have.
1: Now listen, you. The right queer, of, stop
3: of crypto Nazi let's, let's stop or calling I'll stop names. let you in your get, goddamn face, let's and you stay plastered. Gentlemen, let's. let's bill. Bill.
2: But I, can't if you, I remember just watching an, um, the episode of his TV show where he interviewed, uh, I think it was called Fire La- Firing Light, La- where he interviewed uh, Noam Chomsky, a very young looking Noam Chomsky actually. There are moments in it where it's just the way that, like, the two men are sitting, like Chomsky being a massive square. He's sitting there very, very upright, uh, very awkwardly, while Buckley's lounging back with his notepad. And there are moments where, honest to God looks like he's fluttering his eyes. <laughs> <at> Chomsky's <laughs> talking about the Vietnam War. And um, yeah. uh, <laughs> I don't nice. know why I mentioned that. But, yeah, that, that's a pretty. Really, but, again, this kind of... Um, I think what this points to is just... The obvious truth of the more that um, institutional power attempts to eliminate queerness, the more somehow the more avenues of it seems to open up in yeah. some ways, or the fact that it, re- or in so doing, it, in- it inevitably reveals the fact that queer desire is, in some sense, universal, and that it will even among even in even among fascists, it manifests itself. I mean, I like famously Tough Baby with... Complex. Hmm?
0: Tough Baby Complex. I mean, that whole thing that, like, I think it's... Um, Therodora Adorno talk, talks about the idea of, like, the inherent queerness of fascism, that um, the, the the kind of sadistic crimes that they were able to, put, to perpetrate were committed under the sort of subconscious uh, idea that these were crimes that they would masochistically will upon themselves. Um, yeah, the well, it's baby. that same, yeah. It's that...
1: It's that, that that autodestructive nature of fascism, which you can see as sort of being suicidal, or you can give it a, a queer temporality mm. of just being a sense of no future oh, or, yeah. or that, 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 uh, that, that lack of, I mean, the, the, I'm going to butcher this, but the, the sense that some queer theorists have, have affirmed that, um, that aspect of, uh, both fascism and queerness that, that it, as, as much as, uh, to retain its, uh, to what's the phrase? To to embolden itself under current regimes means its own self-destruction.
0: Mm. I mean, it's like kind of um, gun sales always go up under a democratic primacy, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, and uh, famously, uh, yeah, obviously, you obviously know um, Ernst from the uh, leader of the uh the SA, was openly I uh, was openly gay and, and held the opinion that. Um, the arch masculinity of uh national socialism and of uh and of the nationalistic militaristic rebirth that he wanted for germany would involve creating these strong erotic bonds among men Mm. uh as well the um and there was an essay and i I wish to God I could remember who wrote it because it was a very interesting essay years ago about Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, who was then relevant, and, th- and, th- and thank God he's no longer.
0: bankrupted. <laughs> he's having to sell his to shit de- on eBay. Deplatforming de- works.
2: Deplatforming works. Join
0: your local anti perfection Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but
2: one of the things they mentioned, uh, this essay mentioned about uh, about Milo Yiannopoulos, that was an interesting thing about how he presented his homosexuality was the fact that he was really open about the fact that he was a bottom. While well, because the oh, way baby. that the way the way that fascistic homoeroticism had 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 presented itself with uh, the essay was the assumption of being the active, aggressive, dominant top. That's how manly you are, that's how blokey you are. Right. But this is for the thing with the other, yeah. one of the things with Yarnopolis why he was despised by some members by a lot of the alt-right and the uh, and when the and, and you go obviously into outright neo-Nazism, was because he wasn't just uh, into dudes, he wanted to be fucked by dudes. He was into be, he was he was he would uh, into the demasculisation of himself, in their eyes. Um yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, also, ha- the novel I've mentioned on here before, uh, "The Kindly Ones" by Jonathan Little, which uh, is, is a very good book, a very difficult book, um, is written from the perspective- is written as the memoirs of a gay SS officer called Maximilian Hour and I, I don't know how to say the name because it's going to be a French name. But uh, <laughs> but again, there's a bit there's a bit in it Where he recounts how when he was convalescing in an SS um, hospital after he was injured. Uh, he seduces one of the other men there, and he seduces him by tenet, by coming out with the Nazi with a Nazi line, which was not actually permitted because obviously the homophobia of the Nazis by saying that. Well, actually, the prohibition on male male love is a, is uh, from Jewish morality. Well, if you actually look at Aryan morality, the morality of the Greeks and the Romans, it was fully accepted that um, men would have sex with each other, especially in the military context, and that's how he ge- uh, how he goes to bed with this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's it's still with the um, grounding. Des- it's it's a grounding of desire within the bounds of uh, in the bounds of the, of a violent prejudice, which again can only will its own destruction because mm. this can't be tolerated um, by a regime like that. Even if there are like, because one of the things that makes him an interesting character is like he, the way he's presented in this novel is that he is not trying to distance himself from his crimes by saying I was caught up in what was going on there are long passages in the novel where he is explaining uh, racial theory and so on, he's saying that he absolutely believes in this even now uh, that uh, um, that, uh, I don't think I have a conclusion to this anecdote um, we can
0: just go on, can we go on what, into, like, the mythological universe of... I'm also aware well, yeah, we are yeah, okay. we
2: are approaching our third
1: hour. Yeah. Well, I, was, I was just going to say, at least as a, maybe as a tying off point for that anyway, was that this kind of relates to what we're talking about in uh, emphasising the, 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 the problematic nature of Hannibal's own queerness. In the sense that it's almost as if that needs to be an addition, because if he was just eating people and he was wholly destructive, that would be something else entirely... But there's a sense where it's a relationship. And I guess this is also a tend, where you have, you have people that want to eat people and you have people that want to be eaten. And then there's a sense that in, uh, his relationship with Will Graham, in the sense that here, in the series at least, Hannibal literally devours his mind if not his body mm. oh
0: god yeah the, the whole thing about him lying to the neurophysician to say like hey look we could let his uh, encephalitis manifest let's see yeah. where this goes that's one of the most fucking painful episodes yeah. Yeah. of that like
2: yeah says to himself, sort of like well now we know what it is the, all the easier it will be to lie about and then he just dispatches the neurophysician <laughs> just so he can continue with this yeah it's but it's crazy. like that
1: it's like that sort of almost a, an auto-destructive relationship but, but in the sense that almost uh as if it's that a similar sort of relation in it uh, framed wholly negatively and I guess it's the caveat to say that this is not an endorsement but the way that a lot of these ten these tensions are always dramatized in the sense that will Graham and Hannibal almost become a sort of top-bottom relationship with will Graham being the sort of bottom in the sense that he's willing to be sort of dominated by someone that he sees as being like him and that 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 tension of two similar people coming together uh, leading to the destruction of one or both, um, that being the way that it's represented, it's less of a, it's almost as if like a like like Lovecraftian fiction, but it's innate racism. It's as if that this is something that's come from, uh, a narratives or beliefs that are wholly um, uh, prejudiced and filled with hate. Nevertheless, get recombined in our own cultures and become these almost positivised versions of themselves.
0: And hence, that's wh- that's where we got to in the last episode, the the queering of Lovecraft, the fact that it has become a space for queer discourse, and it's kind of embracing of the monstrous, because the tools were given to it by yes. his racism, mm. which is interesting. Um, I think kind of... Actually, that was a thing I was going to talk about, because I, I more or less kind of create an equivalency in my head between Clarice Starling and Will Graham, because... Uh, just, just in the sense that... Um, Silence of the Lambs and Man or Manhunter slash Red Dragon slash Manhunter, following more or less the same plot, but then there there is that fundamental difference uh, between them, and this this comes back to the 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 bitch uh, media article about kind of pre which is kind of cringe. Like it it talks about how like oh the uniqueness of the relationship between Kyrie Starling and Hannibal is because of their mutual respect, uh, but hmm. the reason why um, the reason the difference I think that comes between Clarice Starling and Will Graham is the fact that Clarice Starling is, um, they're bo- well, basically, they're both placed in this, uh, system of, like, ascendant humanity because they're different variations of psychological nuance and interest in serial killing and kind of desire to, um, become, become, br- become great, just in some capacity, uh, tacit tass- but but and in, and, and either, in either case it's born of a sense of duty and what marks Will Graham from someone like a Frederick Chilton is the fact that he's not like Frederick Chilton because um Frederick Chilton wills his own destruction because he's he's trying to compare himself to Hannibal and the difference is that um Will Graham's differentiation from Hannibal is a obstinately self enforced one uh, I mean, it is kind of like, it's It's also seen that in his nature he is ultimately merciful and wants to prevent deaths. But uh, Clarice Starling goes even further because she is just so pure of will and intent. And she just wants to save people and she just wants to stop the killing. And again, the Bitch Media article, I think, I think it does too too much credit to Clarice Starling because, like, Hannibal doesn't give too... Hannibal couldn't give a shit about anyone, um, and they want to act like Hann- Hannibal gives more of a shit about uh, Clarice Darling because he's somehow overpowered by her goodness, which I think is like just no, such a fucking no, terrible no, limb no. factor. It
2: is, it is but... entirely caught up with Hannibal's um, cultivation of himself as one who doesn't like rudeness and is impressed by ability. Yeah, basically. That's all that is. Like, like he recognizes that. Clarice is, um, an intelligent woman who is driven by her own very deeply grounded desires to set the world into a certain fashion. While mm. for her it is, it's about preventing willful destruction of I mean, people while well, for her, yeah. well, it's not, but he's still re- like, it's almost, like, that kind of, like, strange simpatico thing with, um, other serial killers he has, where he recognises in them, um, a sheer, to nature, a sheer will to power, a and will to see the world as you wish it to be. It also manifests in uh, Clarice.
0: And this is actually going back to what I was talking about with uh, the Steppenwolf novel, uh, which is this idea that um, Herman Hesse cultivates a very specific idea about the notion of genius, um, which is, and I was trying to find the quote and then got way bogged down in too much other stuff, but basically the idea is that... Um, his anxieties around the idea of genius is the fact that it's kind of a relationship between human the human and the divine uh i'm trying to trying to get that thing but it's like the purity of intent and one of the i'm trying i couldn't find the quote but i'm pretty sure it's in there and i think it is like probably just a riffing or not just a riffing on nietzsche but it's a very good riffing on nietzsche the idea that goethe is distinguished and the reason why he was able to become a great poet and and enter into what he describes as the immortals is because his his art was a dismissal of selfhood and it was an ascension into godhood but one that was not that was willed in service rather than desire to propagate the inadequately human to something more he was just it was that self-effacingness um of goethe that allowed him like he he was considered he wasn't rude, basically. He um, he ingratiated himself into the realms of the divine uh, and desc- transcended the pillars of Hercules because his intent was... His intent was a, a, a submission of a very pure sort. And Harry Holler, the protagonist of Sephiroth's Desires, are kind of... He recognises a very baseness about himself in comparison mm-hmm. but that is something that even though like the, the bitch media article was cringe it does bring up an interesting point in that um there is a kind of divine panoply at work in the hannibal series which al sandifer articulates very well um which is this ambiguity which I'm, I'm just gonna say now it's, it's an ambiguity around like what is i i mean my personal take is that it's sort of almost a gnostic one in that Hannibal isn't God, but he's something perhaps akin to a demiurge in that he's creating a universe on Earth in which he is the God figure. Um, And that's why he's able to, you know, it's it's just through his pure divine genius, he's able to um, completely um, just overwhelm or elude or just embarrass or just demonstrate at the absolute impotence of the, di- of the material world to have any limitations on him that he becomes mm. di- he he just demonstrates divinity in that capacity and that's where we get that fantastic quote where he's talking about like just articulating his relationship to god
3: it wasn't the act of killing Hobbes that got you down was it did you really feel so bad because killing him felt so good I like killing. Her. Killing must feel good to God too. He does it all the time. And are we not created in his image? It depends who you ask. God's terrific. He dropped the church roof on 34 of his worshippers last Wednesday night in Texas while they sang a hymn. Did God feel good about that? He felt powerful.
0: And he's sort of putting himself into a uh, godly context, but then he's sort of... That's the reason, actually, I bring up Maldoror so often when uh, talking about Hannibal, because Maldoror, he's neither... No, that, that's set in a misotheistic universe, because it's like God is depicted in... Um, God is depicted in the Hannibal... uh, In the Maldoral universe, and by extension the Hannibal universe, as an actual acknowledged literal entity. Um, But he's absolutely powerless and and useless, and he's like the most disgusting, cringe, pathetic thing in the universe, because if this is his creation, this, like, wretched cosmos that we're occupying, then the wretched cosmos is an embodiment of God, and therefore... um, therefore god is the worst thing in it so that's and 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 um in that context Maldoror as an antagonist is able to develop this superhuman and even super divine power to um to will his way through creation humiliating and overpowering and just destroying and corrupting and subverting everything he comes across because because his power comes from evil. His power comes from the very defiance of God. This and is I some, think that is that is Hannibal. I think, but
2: I think it's also worth bringing in the... Um, I mean, the, the, the two other obvious literary reference that at least need to be acknowledged. I'm not sure but I want to go into them too much detail just because of how long we've been going. so. I don't point. think people but, are going to mind, honestly. Um, the obvious one being the Miltonian one, the mm. Milton Satan oh being God, yeah. this figure who... Ah... Uh, Deci- you know, Desires decides, decides well very well I shall just simply carry on well, um, yeah. uh, 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 it, with his ambitions I've got follow up to that with his just, ambitions. Yeah. but the other one that um, we've not mentioned up until this point but has to be talked about in the light of red dragons, William Blake
0: oh god absolutely because, because it's fucking there in the title
2: yeah literally there in the title the, uh, the, re- the great red dragon and the woman clothed with the sun um, the and because uh, I've read some uh Blake in the preparation for this and I I read The Marriage of Heaven and Hell and one of the things that's really striking about that is how Blake identifies uh, a particularly potent kind of like vitalistic divine energy with acts of violent libidinal uh, violent libidinal expressions of freedom Mm. Uh, fuck I've just got to read some passages for this actually
0: and I have a point to wind this up so yeah I have two points to wind this up so
2: Talk amongst yourselves. (laughs) Okay, well, I mean, like, maybe... Actually, no, don't. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Alright, from The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Without contraries is no progression. Attraction and repulsion, reason and energy, love and hate, are necessary to human existence. From these contraries spring what the religious call good and evil. Good is the passive that obeys reason. Evil is the active springing from energy good is heaven, evil is hell. All Bibles or sacred codes have been the causes of the following errors. One, that man has two real existing principles, V, a body and a soul. Two, that energy, called evil, is alone from the body and that reason, called good, is alone from the soul. Three, that God will torment man in eternity for following his energies. But the following contraries to these are true. One, man has no body distinct from his soul, for that called body is a portion of soul, discerned by the five senses, the chief inlets of soul in this age. Two, energy is the only life and is from the body, and reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy. Three, energy is eternal delight. And what we see here is the um, the valorization and the divinization of desire of libidinal energetic desire and explicitly in lots of what Blake says sexual desire sexual uh, uh, sexuality as a liberating emancipatory force but for Blake he kind of he identifies because he has a very, he has a vast and complicated cosmology which I'm not qualified to speak on at all but Blake um identified a particular kind of divinity to um rebellion and to Instinct which he places, um, which he explicitly places in um, the life of Jesus. He like he he his understanding of who uh, Christ was, as opposed to the Christian religion, is reminiscent of Nietzsche in that regard. Because Nietzsche, Nietzsche's view of 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 um, of of the historical Jesus of Nazareth is as a figure not dissimilar to Buddha, who is someone who um, has determined very true things about the nature of suffering and how to avoid suffering one must avoid enmities and but for Blake there's a more radical quality to Christ which uh, comes out in, the very, in, in some of the most strange points of this of, of, of um, the marriage of heaven and hell uh, let me find the bit finding the bit I'm finding the bit there we are here's the bit uh, if Jesus Christ is the greatest man, you ought to love him in the greatest degree. Now hear how he has given his sanction to the law of ten commandments. Did he not mock of the Sabbath, and so mock the Sabbath's of God? Murder those who were murdered because of him. Turn away the law from the woman taken in adultery. Steal the labour of others to support him. Bear false witness when he omitted making a defence before Pilate. Covert what when he prayed for his disciples, and when he bid them shake off the dust of their feet against such as refused to lodge them. I tell you, no virtue can exist without breaking these ten commandments. Jesus was all virtue, and acted from impulse, not from rules. And again, there, what we, what through Blake, and by extension through. Perhaps, by and by ultimate extension through Hannibal because this has come through the way of the character of francis dollar um there is the div, uh the divinization of creative explosive destructive libidinal energies um rather than the fascistic tendency towards control but rather than this being but this being presented as an act of rebellion but almost a rebellion against not a rebellion against God, but almost a, a rebellion against a misunderstanding of what div- of what the divinity is in the first place. Because for for, for the, the Blakean cosmos, places of a divinity within these explosive emancipatory, emancipatory acts of becoming and of the self-transformative nature of desire.
0: It's not what I am, but what I am becoming. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just going back to... Um just going back to we are to forget. the th- three hour point. let's just not let's just stop worrying about time <laughs> at this point <laughs> we can make but, it a two part. <laughs> yeah yeah something yeah. like that but basically I think it's very useful to um bring it back to Alexander for here because she makes the point and also just uh, in the context of like where it features in The Reaction of Basilisk because she talks about Lucifer Satan Milton's Satan specifically and Milton having been a fundamental influence on blake's thinking um he
2: was of the devil's party
0: yeah yeah i mean like that's i mean that's the whole just stanley fish he was of the devil's party thing is just like that's fucking just will graham surprised by sin cs lewis reference there but i mean that's 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 a whole other phase of um milton scholarship that we don't have time to get onto. but (laughs) um but um no basically it's like it's kind of like that something so fundamental to milton was the 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 literary context of paradise lost because one of the things that milton is following and it's a kind of augustinian principle is that okay a bit of background to paradise lost so milton throughout his life was dead set on writing a great arthurian epic and um he never did this but in a sense paradise lost was his great Arthurian epic, and it was also his great Iliad equivalent, because his attitude to class, his attitude to the classics um, was that they are extremely useful as um, uh, as didactic sources, because they could teach people in the ways of art and morals and 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 critical thinking. But they stopped short at divinity because they were ultimately human creations, and so a lot of the drama of Paradise Lost is, um, is ultimately just, this is the surprise by Sin, ultimately is that, um, the surprise is that you are made to kind of feel that you are, um, you are, you are unwillingly or unwittingly in the Devil's Party, because, You're reading it with the same kind of juvenile excitement as you would read as a description of a battle happening in the Aeneid or the Iliad. Um, But this is purely and, you know, and in that context, the rebellious Satan is a hero and um and his like kind of the catalogs of you know the rundown of um his different angels who are entering in battle with him and using cannons and shit is really fucking avengers cool um <laughs> and it's like it's just to show you the fucking irrelevance of that that these these heroics are ultimately fallible stupid or well, you're not stupid but um but uh, ultimately, relevant human things, and that's why that's why Paradise Regained is the is the drier text, but it's the one he regarded as his masterpiece. But in that context, you are meant to identify with the um, you are meant to identify with the heroic Satan, and that's why you're surprised by sin because it's like, oh shit, I gave I gave in to my human impulses and identified with Satan. I'm such an idiot, and I deserve to be turned into a snake. But um, the way I mean, just bringing back. Bring this back to Elsander. This is the folly that she attributes to Mencius Moldbug, in that he his politics is born of inherent Whiggishness, and um, and she identifies, you know, Milton Satan as the first Whig. Um, that um, <laughs> and that and that's again just like kind of just scoping back in, descending back to earth. This is the folly of the serial killer. They are someone who is identifying themselves with Milton Satan because they are transcending the wo- the laws of. of it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. I'm fucking up the earth. I own this shit. I own this town. I am so defiant and no one can catch me. But where the fuck is it getting me? Mm. And that's, that's the fundamental message of Hannibal. I mean, and that's even the folly of Hannibal that comes through, is this kind of ultimately human failure to... Um, to access the divine by means that you can't argue with because they're divine and you just can't say no to that shit and this is the folly she recognizes in Mencius Moldbug um, and and there you have it so I, I, I you know that's that i mean that's that's the, that's where um Sandifer locates mencius moldbug in the cosmic drama of hannibal um, and also she just like talks about so one of the things in, mentions in his like big sprawling fucking blog epic LessWrong.com, or whatever it was called.
2: Uh, l- less, I'm really yeah. amused that you met that you said it was less wrong because less wrong is like the rationalist with a capital R Eliza Yudkowsky y- um, forum of nightmares. Okay, and no, I got that wrong. Well, <laughs> the, but no, uh, but she she considers Nick Land Yudkowsky and Moldbug as like three prongs of the same shitty stick in a sense Uh, (laughs) like uh,
0: and and land as well but um if we if we want to fucking contextualize these these three guys with hannibal nick land is hannibal um yudkowski is francis Dollahide, and mod bug is buffalo bill and they're all fucked um but it
2: sounds to me a lot like what you're saying here lucy is vanity of vanities saith the preacher vanity of vanities all is vanity. Go to church.
0: Okay. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, yes! Okay, so... Can we talk about the Theatre of Dionysius? This is, a, well, this is gonna link back to fucking Nietzsche again, because, okay, so... Go for it! So Go for we've it! We've established that um, that the Hannibal universe operates in a divine schema. Oh, shit, the point I was gonna make about bitch media. So, the, you know there's that bit where um, Hannibal passes the notes about the Buffalo Bill case file that he's written up to, um, to Clarice Starling as she's being dragged away by the police. Yeah. Um, that is, you know, a very, very obvious visual, me- visual reference to Michelangelo's, um, the, the fingers touching Adam mm. and God and the transference of of knowledge between them. And, The reason why Bitch Media, their, I think, fundamental error is associating a divinity with Hannibal, because it's creating a relate. I mean, the whole point of um, Paradise Regained, in relation to Paradise Lost, is the demonstration of the inherently human capacity for salvation, that Christ's victory against Satan in the desert is because he wins by entirely human means, not divine means. And he could call on the divine any time that he wanted, but he doesn't. Um, because, you know, he's facing Satan who is, not unlike the serial killer, simultaneously the most powerful thing on Earth and the most miserable thing in it. Mm. Um, And so, it's like, it's saying, like, okay, then Clarice Starling is Christ and Hannibal is God, but we can only conceive of that as being an accurate take if we're looking at um, treating this as an analogy and it's like, it's not God, it is the Demiurge it is a self-created or kind of like universe-fashioning God figure that well, is not
2: of, God. One of the Gnostic images that's used of the Demiurge is that he's, uh, but the Demiurge only has one eye was blind in one eye. And, okay, and, and, well how about has six the fingers? Si- the, si- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the symbolism of, of this being that the Demiurge is blind to everything but it's not, it's not himself in his creation. Like and is that? and can't, yeah, that's like like a bit, yeah, and, and cannot, and does not actually, and is incapable of conceiving of the fact that there is a greater divinity beyond himself, which is why, uh, as you've correctly, as you've correctly stated, that the, the, kind of like the gross tragedy of this figure is that there is actually something above and beyond him, which is greater than him, which, to which he li- literally is incapable of conceiving, because, um, Gnostic cosmology the demiurge is born out of like an imbalance between the eonic emanations and is, and is and it is through um this um imbalance that the material world of matter comes about uh, at all that but rather but, but um but what the, Dem- the demiurge doesn't understand this and is trapped and is essentially trapped in a prison of its own making as the... Lose a piece of shit. It's a loser piece of shit, yeah. Um, thank you for being the one that led the theology angle on this one, Lucy. Thank you.
3: <laughs>
0: okay, so... Well, uh, let's um, just take a bit of a break from the Christian world um, into the world of, like... The the theater of Dionysius. <laughs> um, so basically, I don't know. It seems like irrelevant at this. Not irrelevant, but just like we talked about so much that like the, the sections we actually planned seem like a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a, a bit of a jobs. What work fools we were! But, what clowns? Uh, But no, like so basically. Um, so we've got one mythological universe, that is the Christian universe, but we've also um. got something that's very very similar to um, the theater of Dionysius, where it's the concept of the serial killer is very kind of and not directly analogous but comparable comparable to uh the concept of the tragic hero because uh, i mean the 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 the, the actual greek word er, hero i erroneously thought for a long time that um it was derived from the term hero and eros as in like things born and crucially crucial to remember eros is not venus eros is the um is the divine embodiment of uncontrollable passion. Uh, and alcibiades had a symbol of eros as he, on his shield as he went into battle against like I guess it was the Spartans um, and you know that's something that's just a thing, a thing worth pointing out but I think the two have been conflated like through mis erroneous uh, etymology so much that it's worth bringing in both anyway but um but 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 um so of Dionysius, so the tragic hero uh, is analogous to the serial killer and i my thesis statement, I guess where I was going with this is that the Hannibal universe operates not unlike the theater of Dionysius in that it is an artistic depiction of um, of man becoming God or man entering the divine pantheon by doing inhuman things, but in the heroic context, this is through acts of inhuman bravery or inhuman valor or inhuman. Th- bravery in committing terrible things. I'm thinking specifically about the drama of Orestes, who kills his own mother and is tormented by the Furies. And in the last part of the uh, Oresteia, which is uh, Aeschylus' great kind of tra- um, tetralogy, because there were always tetralogies because they would have a fun bit at the end. Um, <laughs> and um, although I don't think that one survives, but basically um, he is saved from the worldly um, model of human punitive justice by the encroaching by the, by the intercession of Apollo who says like okay no here's a divine law that I'm going to hand down to you and that is the law of elective justice where we're going to put these stones into a pot and enough, if enough of them say guilty or innocent you'll be absolved <laughs> um, irrespective of, um, of what human laws say because the gods are Beyond good and evil, because they are, or you know, they were coloured in very, very, um, very, very human ways. But well, I Plato uh, objects to
2: them. Yeah. yeah, but
0: I mean, this is what um, this. Is, I mean, the reason why this is kind of in the theatre, in the context of the theatre of Dionysus significant, is because if nothing else, and I guess this is how I'd link it back to Nietzsche, it's the idea that um, these these plays were acknowledged as works of art, works of literature, works of theatre. But simultaneously and on equal grounds, they were treated as divine rights, and so um, I guess this is just a wider comment about the aestheticization of serial killing—that this is a divine right, um, and and one is going to transcend to God. Uh, but also to link it back to Nietzsche, this is this is why he identified the uniqueness of Greek culture because the Greeks were the Greeks had a way of. Um, giving divine character to abstract concepts in a way that uh, Christian Europe wasn't able to, and this is why he advocates a return to Hellenism as the salvation and... Not salvation, that's a bit of a teleological thing, but... Uh, well, the are kind of the coming again of a great enlightenment in Europe happening in Germany, because it is, the, it is exactly that. His, his whole his old project just goes back to the Greeks. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think... Um, yeah, and also a lot of these were quite grisly things and involved a lot of sacrifice and ritualized sacrifice, and again, serial killing is in the minds of the serial killers and in the minds of um Thomas Harris, a ritualized act. So that's that's my take. That was just what I wanted to bring in. Um, here we go. And also, you know, you mentioned actually there was something about a feedback loop of the fact that the you know, there was the the fact that um, He eats
2: the painting but it just makes yeah. it stronger yeah because he...
0: yeah and also just you, the thing you mentioned in our chat beforehand about how it's well i think i kind of like elaborated but you, you with the, the source of this the, the the idea that we've watched the hannibal series develop from a, proli- a police procedural true crime inspired drama into a great abstract surrealist masterpiece yeah and i, I just think that's really good so <laughs> <laughs> well, fr- yeah
1: because because the, the the show it's or the not even the show but the 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 franchise the universe of Hannibal has eaten itself to the point that it had to be cancelled by yeah. whatever it was A B whoever whatever NBC or like whatever that. the network was yeah so it goes from book to through various adaptations but it's always this sense of it has to well, like this the the line of uh, I'm going to have my friend over for dinner or something that it it it, it 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 every new adaptation can't forget its past and so it ends up just sort of redigesting itself and Brian Fuller's Innovation really is to yeah take that into just psychedelic surrealist uh, realms, Mm -hmm. Um, but in the end that's it's kind of the most fitting end for that series because it couldn't get beyond that. um, It it, it, it did what Hannibal almost can't achieve. Yeah, it's I guess it's this tension between the good and the bad, right? So there's this uh, there's this auto cannibalistic sense that is auto destructive and it's just gonna go down a big black hole and never come out of it. But there's always the the the, that process in itself is caught up in that tension of is this gonna be my end or is this will both be my salvation? And that marriage of of, of heaven and hell being that sort of that 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 same uh tension. And you can't really start on that process knowing where you're gonna end up. But Brian Fuller, in a way, seems to have taken on that same. He becomes the Hannibal of the Hannibal TV series by sort of eating itself and actually bringing it to a point where it just exceeds its own bounds, mm. and he does what, yeah, does and, what Hannibal could never manage to and, achieve, and
0: then then transcends to a, a realm in which it goes beyond um, a re- something that humanity or art could ever achieve. Yeah, and was cancelled. Yeah, um,
2: and then lived again in yeah. the form of Weed Signal. Yes,
0: I <laughs> yeah. I know we've got like a whole section on Buffalo Bill Montel, no. but it feels like let's not do that. No, I think that I maybe just Science of the Labs needs its own episode. Sure. to do that. I think do I come back for that? We could do that. <laughs> sure, yeah, I'm down yeah. for that. Okay, because awesome. it's been like what the fuck are we on? Like we're like,
2: we're past the three hour mark. By okay, some three margin. hours and twenty minutes.
0: I think we should call it. Call it. Yes, because yeah, it's so fucking hot. We've run out of wine and water and strawberries. <laughs> and um, let's
2: get takeout and watch a movie. <laughs> oh dear God, can we please? <laughs> yeah. Okay, um,
0: uh, so on that fucking series of <laughs> that carpet bombing of uh, <laughs> bombshells.
2: Um, all there's left to say is fuck Bolsonaro, fuck Boris Johnson, fuck Turfs, fuck Turfs, fuck Donald Trump, obviously. Um, Fuck Lord Buck, But that goes without saying uh, Come gracious Lord Save us all from ourselves <laughs> Well I've got to say that um, Matt It's been an absolute pleasure To have you on the show Absolutely We're definitely gonna, We're going to get you back on To talk about Silence of the Lambs Don't know when But we we'll definitely will. It'll yeah, be sure. great <laughs> um
0: no hey, probs. This has been this has been one of our finest hours. I can <laughs> Our finest three and a half hours.
2: I can't wait to read the book. It's going to be really really cool. Uh, and I'm still only just like, um, like brushing the surface of like your lo- your uh, blog out uh, books, which I've only which have only started looking at like since we started like arranging for bits. And I'm really looking forward to uh, diving into all that because that looks really really cool. Great. Thank um, you. So uh, until such a time as when, stay weird. And Keep it signal. Good
0: night. Good night.